Hello, how are you? Happy New Year. I am Alex Steed. I'm one of the co-hosts of You Are Good at Feelings podcast about movies. Rather than bringing to you a proper episode in which we talk about feelings in movies, we're bringing two episodes in one. We're bringing a conversation we had with our great friend Chelsea Weber-Smith of American Hysteria. We had a chat about the self-esteem movement, about mythology. I already disagree with some of the things that I said in the episode. particularly about the strength of mythology in this country now in modern times. But uh, this just felt right to put in the feed. You probably already listened to the show if you listen to our show and you've already heard Chelsea on Sarah's show, you're wrong about. But um, yeah, I just wanted to make sure that you're acquainted with Chelsea, with Miranda, with American Hysteria. These are some of our lovely, lovely friends. And I think it's another way to get to know us beyond us talking about movies. And then afterward, we're featuring an episode about the movie Go. And the episode is of the show This Ends at Prom, which is hosted by our other great friends, BJ and Harmony Colangelo. We love BJ and Harmony so much. BJ and Harmony have been on our show. And when they asked me to go on the show, and talk about my favorite teen movie, Go! came to mind immediately. And I was kind of surprised that I loved it as much as I did after not having seen it for many, many years. This is our podcast cohort in one way or another. Like these are people who we either launched alongside of or have been part of our journey in one way or another. We love them. So I assume that you're going to love them too. Just a few pieces of housekeeping before we jump into all of this. First, You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies is made possible with your support. Thanks to everyone who supports us on Patreon, patreon.com slash you are good. Over there, you get bonus episodes very soon. You're going to have a bonus episode about and just like that, the Sex and the City reboot and just like that. You get a couple bonus episodes a month. It's a lot of fun over there. Thanks so much to Knack Factory, K-N-A-C-K Factory, which is a commercial and creative video content production company based in Portland, Maine with offices in Nashville, Tennessee, though they do work throughout these here United States. Thank you so much to the fine folks at Knack Factory for making this all possible. There will be no playlist for this week's episode because this isn't one of our episodes. And finally, there'll be a bit of a merch update next week because we have a new logo and we launched it yesterday on social And the response has been tremendous from people who listen to the show and people who don't even know what the show is. The response has been tremendous. You may have seen this logo in the past. Liz Glow is an artist. You've seen her work. It is great. And it just speaks to a sweetness that is kind of to the core of the show in particular. Liz did this illustration we put on a shirt last year and it just was so perfect that we were like, you know, this show has been about dad's. We need to make it about what it's actually about, which is feelings. Liz had done this illustration. It's based on the scene from Young Frankenstein where we get our name and just it felt right. And then we launched it yesterday. And God, the response has been absolutely lovely from folks who know us from our work, from folks who know Liz through her work. And it's incredible. I'm so glad that everyone is responding in the way that they are. So look out for a merch announcement next week for a new beautiful logo and illustration. All right, that's enough from me for now. Let's talk with Chelsea over at American Hysteria. It's such a strange American mythology to be like, you know, yeah, that's how you succeed by being the most special. And it's like, shouldn't I just be able to be completely unexceptional and still have dental care? (laughs) 
Sarah Marshall and Alex Steed host the Feelings Movie podcast, You Are Good, a show that invites guests to talk about films that have been meaningful in their lives. Then together, they discuss what the themes tell us about ourselves and our culture. Today, my good old buddies and I will talk about self-esteem from our own perspectives, share the movies that made us, and break down the myths we create as secular seekers. Oh, and of course, since Sarah is also the host of You're Wrong About, we find a way to connect the satanic panic right back to the self-esteem movement. Here we go. Let's get special. I am thrilled beyond belief to uh, invite two of our favorite people onto the show. That is Sarah Marshall and Alex Steed of the You Are Good podcast. And we know Sarah from You're Wrong About as well. So welcome to you both. And thank you for coming on. Thanks for having us. Thank you. You are wrong and good. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So that's perfect to start. You guys host a, a feelings movie podcast, which is so fantastic. And I know our if our audience doesn't already listen, it's right up everybody's alley feelings and movies. But I want I was interested because we our topic today is sort of self-esteem, the self-help movement, things like that. And and your name is very evocative of this this idea that we're trying to at at our cores become good. So I'm interested in in how did you land on that? You are good as uh, as a podcast name. So we started off as why our dads and we were talking about movies where fatherhood was some kind of a theme and also talking about a lot of dad baggage. And at a certain point, I think late last spring, we decided that we had kind of done as much as we could with the concept and wanted to still stay a feelings movie podcast in a general sense and started looking for a name and the problem was that like every single possible film related pun was taken because the two main kinds of podcasts are people shouting at each other about movies and true crime and so we just went through I feel like we were working on this for a couple of weeks and then actually a listener had suggested that we call it you are good which was something we talked about in our Young Frankenstein episode, um, which was one of the first ones that we did. And that was the one that stuck and made the most sense. Alex, do you want to say anything Yeah, else? I mean, I think, I don't know. It, <laughs> I think I'll be able to speak to this more after we have a larger conversation about, you know, your, your previous episode on self-esteem and sort of the difference sure. between the projected reality of what self-esteem is and and what it can or could mean. But I was struck in listening to your episode in hearing all these things that I forgot even happened at my school, like yes. I would have told you sort of straight up that these things didn't happen at my school until I heard you talk about specific things that brought back brought back memories. And I think, you know, in one way or another, this title, You Are Good, even though this was clearly propagandized to us at like an educational level, I think like every element of being alive in whatever weird version of capitalism we're in is being told that we're not good at all on a regular basis and that Mm. that or being reminded that we're anxious and we have reasons to be anxious so buy something or click something or or divert your attention and so the whole you know reason that you are good resonated with us is not reminding people in a superficial like a warm and fuzzy uh way but in saying 
you are not bad in the thousand of different ways that you're going to be told today that you are. Yeah. And also it's a Mel Brooks homage and that was really nice to have. Yes. I think you bring up a really good point, and that was something I was so nervous about on the episode because it's so hard to differentiate. Such an it's an abstract concept, you know, self esteem. It, it's just it's just something that we made up to try to quantify this this thing that we actually can't and don't fully understand what we're getting at here. But at the same time, the guy Vasco, who who kind of masterminded this whole self esteem project, also grew up being told he was bad as a Catholic kid. And so this was sort of his, I think, trauma reaction to that as it was for so many people. So I think even though the self-esteem movement had its like warm and fuzzy annoyances about it, it was coming out of an actual Mm -hmm. need. Yeah, and it's I had the same experience as Alex listening to this episode where I was like, I know people talk about like the self-esteem movement being pushed on children, but I don't remember that happening to me. And then when you described the part where you have to go like throw a ball at each other (laughs) and like, yes. And like grudgingly come up with something positive to say about somebody. I was like, oh my God, I did that. We did that. Yeah. And it was weird. It was weird to think that it wasn't just this guy, the guy in my school who did his name was Pat Peluso. And like, I, I, and he, I just assumed he was like some weird figure that was like specific to our school. And like, he was just like a weird, you know, he was like the guidance counselor from Beavis and Butthead. He's sort of the very (laughs) same vibe. Um, And it was revealing in a big way to realize that that was happening everywhere. And, and yeah, I mean, I think our shows, your show, Chelsea, our show, Sarah's show, you're wrong about like, these are, these are all shows in one way or another that are meant to get to sort of some abstract approximation of truth in one way or another. And so by no means do I think that like, you know, you are good is a a reverse prescription (laughs) to what we hear every day. But I've related certainly to that origin story of the, the self-esteem movement, you know, and I love everything that you said about it. And I love sort of all the things that were revealed about it. But I, you know, (laughs) it was interesting to hear that there was like such this like, pro free market capitalist propulsion behind it and that that self-esteem could be used in that way because i i just see capitalism manifest itself every single day in a much more demeaning way or in a way that advocates for what you were talking about which is like this this very superficial almost sort of narcissistic idea of self-esteem so Mm. so yeah that's i mean that's the ecosystem in which we're (laughs) trying to exist (laughs) and try to do something interesting in the face of that. So since we remember it as being kids, right, it's certainly in no way a movement limited toward children, the self-esteem movement and kind of all of the pop psychology movements with the goal of self-love or anything like that, which again, I believe to be very valuable, but at the same time, it's it's kind of convoluted with these other problematic elements that it's like picked up along, you know, along its journey through history. But I was I'm curious if both of you have a relationship to self-help. Sarah, I'm eager to hear your answer to this. I actually I don't know what your answer will be. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I feel like my first association with that is like the moment in When Harry Met Sally where Carrie Fisher is like, someone is looking at you in personal growth. (laughs) Um, And like, I feel as if I grew up, you know, growing up and as being a little kid in the early 90s, like you definitely 
inherit an awareness of like what adults are kind of dragging each other about at the time. And I think one of them was the prevalence of self-help books and like the, what seemed like an extremely flourishing industry in the nineties. And I think is now in different ways, but like the self-help book I think was so huge. I feel as if I don't personally have as much of a relationship with that because I haven't tried to self-help through a book in my life really but I also feel like I'm trying in my like fear of therapy in my adult life I've like tried to do like my own personal self-help course and like teach myself how to have self-esteem is like one of the big things in that yeah but I feel as if the concept of self-help was like really kind of mocked and stigmatized in the 90s which I can see is like a reasonable and meaningful backlash against this really kind of, you know, relentless commercialization of something that had plenty of good ideas, I think, at its core, but was being used as a cure for everything. And I feel like I grew up with the sense that, like, the adults running the country at the time were, like, both deeply addicted to this industry and also found it very embarrassing. Yeah, I don't, I mean, I, I, <laughs> so speaking of Pat Palooza, I hope he listens to this episode. <laughs> So this guy, this guy came into our classroom and he did these exercises. Like this is the only place like in my experience, I can acutely say like, this is where this practice or ideology was kind of like overtly occurring in my school as he came in. I think like when we were in the fourth or fifth grade, he did these exercises with the koosh ball. He did like, he did that whole thing. And then he kind of like, I don't know if he was a, I don't know what he was like. I don't know if he was a counselor or whatever, but he like picked people to have like a sort of a separate group with those people that was like kind of like a roundtable therapy group in one way or another. And I think it was like aimed at, at addressing their self-esteem. Like I'm realizing in retrospect, that's what it was. And I didn't get picked. And I'm positive that set me up for being counter to everything Pat Palooza <laughs> represented for like the rest of my life. Pat Palooza was a very <laughs> earnest name for, I assume, a very earnest person. Yeah. It sure is. Pat, you really did some damage unintentionally. But I, I remember like already being skeptical of that because I was cynical going back to like seven or eight um, but I was especially skeptical after so I so and then when like capital S capital H self-help that Sarah is talking about when those books came out I immediately was extraordinarily skeptical of them and I have like one overt self-help book which is by that like four hour work week guy. And it's like it's like it's called Tools for Titans and I'm really embarrassed that I own it. <laughs> but, you know, Chelsea, because we, we talk about this a, a lot, like I go about a self-help journey without any books that are specific to self-help, like through, you know, through whatever, through like Eastern perspective and meditation and you know, books about mythology and books about, you know, fairy tales and, and children's stories and archetypes and all that. Like I am certainly... <laughs> You know, I'm certainly on the path without buying anything that subscribes overtly to the genre, but absolutely, you know, dabbles with the genre. I'm I'm going about it like the most cowardly way possible. <laughs> you you want like the the you want the more quality content that the other content is kind of ripping off the centuries old content. Yeah, well, I feel like it's all in one way or another. Usually, going back to Buddha. Hmm. <laughs> So but it's like, how do we sell the Buddha? How do we make the Buddha sexy? 
<laughs> exactly. <laughs> so I'm like, I'll just go straight there. Thank you. <laughs> or to Young. It's all like Young or Buddha. And so I'm, I, I'll just go straight to I this know, one. I feel like Carl Young's always the one I go back to for better, for worse. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Thank Carl. you, Carl. <laughs> you weird, weird motherfucker. <laughs> you weird dude. <laughs> well, you know, I'm thinking of like, because I guess self-help to me is like maybe a broader ca- category than it is to you guys. Because mm. I'm thinking of like, Eckhart Tolle like did you guys ever read any Eckhart Tolle no and I feel like I definitely I always have peripherally known people who were like Tolle fans and I remember they always like it was like you know like a girl in one of my lecture classes who wore earrings that she made herself that were like really thin slices of (laughs) oranges that she then laminated or something not laminating like something it was really pretty and I was just even and I'm a pretty sincere person but I remember just being like I'm never going to be that sincere like I guess I know that (laughs) oh that's so good that's such that's such a Sarah. That's such a good differentiator that I never even realized that I I felt <laughs> about it. Is like I've always thought Tolle was a charlatan in one way or another because it feels like it feels like this like simulacrum of sincerity or like this project. Oh, a hundred percent. Right, like a projection of like it. It feels like it's gone from like being like very very sincere to being like look at how sincere I'm being. And I'd never. And I'm not talking about that girl yeah. that you went to school with. But some of the other girls. <laughs> a person who could get tricked by that. Right, and like what? And then I guess like the other big association I have more recently is with The Secret, which I feel like yeah. <laughs> distills this concept to an adder so pure that like it's hard not to see what a lot of these this other bibliography has been about the whole time, but maybe less overtly, which is just like the prosperity gospel for secular people. Absolutely. Oh, wow. Yeah. What was your relationship with Tolle, Chelsea? Sorry if we just shat, shat on you. <laughs> oh, shit, no. No, 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 no. Oh, my God. No, 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 no. So my my dad uh, is like a new age Gnostic kind of person. That was like the, the mm. realm in which my... I had no religion in my family. That was like the closest I came to religion was like a very new age religion. And so he, even to this day, buys his books, Eckhart Tolle's books, anytime he finds them at the thrift store and just gives them away, right? So this is a very like canon. This is like canon in my life is Eckhart Tolle. But the loss of the ego is sort of his whole thing is your ego is the the negative internal voice um, and and finding your true self underneath that, which is a great message. Totally get it. It's, it's good. It's been very helpful to me. But like just watching someone claim to have no ego, it's like if you don't have an ego, you don't have a personality. And also, if you didn't have an ego, like, would you be saying that to people? You would think not. You would think, but he he's just here to help, you know? He's just here and to this help. Is, this is why I feel like I take the coward's way out, because, like, I feel like in that same category, but I can't quite explain what's different, is, like, Thich Nhat Hanh, who is... You know, in a in, an amazing Eastern Buddhist monk um, has, is still alive. Some is like a hundred and seventy years old and still alive somehow. Um, not not really that old, but very old, and and is, is essentially kind of preaching the same thing. Though I always get the sense is like not saying that they've achieved some other plane 
or they've they've like achieved some great ego egoless accomplishment in a way that makes me continue to trust them like they have some self-awareness of being a person with an ego and keep returning to that and for some reason i feel like that's a person who you know isn't smiling in my face with their hand on my wallet at the same time gently mugging you (laughs) yes 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 so kind so what you're talking about, Alex, is, as you mentioned, something we talk about a lot, which is our different spiritual journeys, whatever you want to call it. I don't think that's what I would call mine necessarily anymore, but sort of how we make sense of reality and uh, especially through myth is mm. something we're both interested in. And to bring up a quote from the episode again that was so cool from John Hewitt, who's a social scientist, he said, in this myth of self-esteem, it's not a story of ancient heroes and military victories, but contemporary tales in which men and women overcome mainly psychological obstacles to success and happiness. So I think it's interesting to think about what is our myth now in a secular society that doesn't have a formal religious structure. So Alex, would you want to talk about some of your thoughts you've been having on that lately? Um, sure. I mean, I don't I don't know that I have a tidy series of thoughts. As you know, anytime something hits me that I'm like, I should tell Chelsea about this, it's like at least 2,000 words <laughs> if not more. So it's I'm constantly just trying to sort through what I feel but like I don't I don't know like I I increasingly get the sense that outside of something that is manufactured by, you know, capitalist interest, we have virtually no myth or no no, no series of of narratives that are resonant in a deeper way to to most people and i feel like that actually is what explains a lot it's what explains like a particularly either nihilist or narcissistic bent among many folks uh so yeah i i increasingly feel like there is no necessarily unified myth and i think that there's there's a lot of good things that come out of that and there are a lot of bad things that come out of that because unified myths often are exclusionary in one way or another and that that creates its own series of problems but then things can become extremely relativist you know and on and on so whenever i'm looking into mythologies that predate the 20th and 21st century i'm just trying to look at what people tap into in a more general resonant way that carries on sort of generation to generation and era to era and that is what i get excited by that's like why i like you know non-branded children's stories <laughs> i think <laughs> i think there's like there are these these archetypes and psychologies and and various things that resonate with humans generally that when we are able to tap into them without you know kind of a brand or a specific series of personalities imposed onto it you know, there's a reason why we tell the same stories in one way or another over and over, over the the course of years. But I think that that lack of myth and that, that sort of absolute secularism and that eschewing of mythology in favor of, you know, what is quote rational and what is quote exclusively scientific. Again, there's a lot of good stuff that comes out of that, but then there's a lot of people going, well, what the fuck is the point then? And Mm -hmm. that's what I'm constantly trying to figure out. And I know that that's what you're constantly trying to figure out. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it is. Sarah, do you have anything you want to say about this? Yeah, I mean, 
the idea that in America specifically, and again, that's the only country I really know anything about, um, so it's the only <laughs> one I can speak to, that we don't have non-branded mythology or non-monetized mythology, like, that hadn't occurred to me before, but it feels alarmingly true. And it reminds me of the time that I went to uh, Disney World for the first time as an adult, which, Chelsea, we've talked about Disney on your show as well, mm -hmm. um, which was a great joy to me. And I both love and hate Disney World so incredibly much, which I feel like is just, you know, it, those emotions are like equally balanced. Like, I'm so happy the Enchanted Tiki Room exists. And also, mm -hmm. it's very weird to realize that like, I don't know, for me, kind of like, this is exemplified really well by Disney now owning Star Wars, where like Star Wars is such secular American mythology and like, Literally, to the extent that George Lucas, like, had Joseph Campbell teach him how mythology works hmm. so that he could then mm. do that very Ooh. successfully, at least the first time out. <laughs> and, um, you know, we talk a lot about the media landscape that we inevitably end up with when a handful of corporations control almost all of the information and narrative that we are able to receive as consumers. But, like, talking about the fact that like Disney by itself really controls a lot of the what I would think you could only accurately call mythology that people live their lives by and learn by and think about. And I remember also at the time thinking about the messages of Disney Renaissance movies that I grew up with. And like, you know, just a lot of stories for kids, which is still like, this is kind of a hot button thing for me now where like, if there's a kids movie where the message is like, believe in yourself just believe in yourself. And it's like, okay, but like, what are you doing? What are you believing that you need to be able to do? And like, is it a good thing that you're trying to do? Because like, the concept that you talk about in your episode about like, the idea of giving kids mirrors or whatever, like, you know, <laughs> I'm thinking of the scene in The Big Lebowski as well, but mirrors that say something like this is one of the most special people or something. It's like the concept of most special feels so indicative of like, I don't know, like how I think self-esteem is a really positive concept, but like it can't fix systemic problems by itself. And also when it gets married to sort of the brain rotted uh, ideology of American capitalism, it's like, it's not enough to be special. You have to be the most special <laughs> and all of the kids <laughs> have to be the most special at once. And I think that's why I keep sort of driving back to, you know, capitalism as ideology is that, again, the entire basis of the myth around just selling shit is you need 1% of everything that is on offer and you don't even really need that. And the only way to create the impression that you need it is to suggest you'll be inferior without it. So this whole idea of saying like, you are special, you are the most special, you are the most special, um, you know that's not true. You know that will never be true deep down inside. And so like every time you feel like you're slipping by not living up to that potential, that, the, that you're failing your highest possible realized potential and you get a little anxious about it, you know, the, in, the right ad pops up and you're able to buy something that at the very least gives you a pass until the next time you feel that way. <laughs> so I see it serving, the, you know, the, I, I do think that there is a mythology. It's just not 
I guess like all mythology in one way or another, it's, it's rooted in a particular anxiety and it's, it's highly, highly, highly transactional. And you've talked about capitalism a lot. And I think really another important thing that I've learned for making the show is that so much of our idea of individuality was constructed again by like one charismatic person, Edward Bernays, that we talk about in our influencers episode, who really started selling everybody on in the 20s, like be an individual, show yourself through the products that you own, like smoke cigarettes, like a cool feminist, you know, like plant, like planting people and in in crowds to make it look like they were actually smoking as feminists, but they were just rich debutantes and kind of crafting this whole world around like the cult of individuality. And that was coming at a really, you know, just like really interesting time in history that then kind of blossom helped blossom this uh cap the capitalist version of the new age i think <laughs> of this this individual search because that wasn't a thing before right i mean it wasn't like nobody thought about themselves as a personality really until even the 1920s when we started having movies and we could see ourselves reflected back in in the media in a new way and i just think uh it's this individuality thing is such an important part of being an American. And it comes at you from every direction, conservative and mm. liberal and capitalist and, you know, and even in our own communities as, as um, whatever we identify as, there's something about identity that is so integral to America. Yeah, I mean, I feel like there's this idea in America too that like individualism is your consolation prize for the economy trying to murder you all the time. <laughs> <laughs> and it's born of alienation, right? Like the the whole idea, like the the prequel to that influencers piece. I love I love that episode of yours, but the the prequel is like, why do brands exist, right? And it's because when we went into a place where like you you know when your neighbor wasn't the only person you were getting. Um, oatmeal from and suddenly it was mass produced there needed to be a picture of someone who looked trustworthy on the on the bag and everybody mm -hmm. loves quakers it's one right, of america's right. dominant religions it's very confusing branding i do like quakers we do yeah <laughs> i do like them i'm it a is very confusing but like the the it it's born of this shift that's happening when when we're you know in sort of the middle of industrialization and we're getting pulled out of these smaller communities that are thinking communally and we're we're moving towards a place where we're no longer part of these organisms that we can identify or that we can sort of like name all the individuals in that community anymore and so we're increasingly realizing that we're smaller and what comes with that is this idea that we have to establish some sort of identity to keep ourselves company hmm. it reminds me we you know in our one of our first episodes we did poison halloween candy and kind of the history of candy candy panics and uh <laughs> what you're talking about is the distancing of ourselves from our communities has also led to so many panics in terms of like food being contaminated. Yeah. Mm. And, uh, you know, man that anxiety is so real. It actually manifested in full-blown hysterias. And uh, I think on that note, I would love to shift a little bit to thinking about the misleading that happened with the self-esteem movement. And um, Sarah, as 
a fellow, I don't know, debunker. <laughs> I don't think that's what we do. But as a fellow person who investigates lies told by mm. culture, is there anything that the self-esteem movement kind of reminded you of? I mean, I feel as if the examples are so many that I'm having a hard time <laughs> even like picking some out. But I mean, actually, this feels to me reminiscent of the satanic panic itself as well, which is like, you know, the the origin of our bond is like shared satanic panic interest, <laughs> which is, you know, that's, that's how you find your people and being fascinated by miscarriages of justice, I think. Sarah, you were my first. I just <laughs> want you to know, I don't think that I had met anybody before we met all the, like a few years ago that really knew because our culture hadn't really been talking about it too much until more recently. Yeah. But I just wanted you to know you were my first and it brought my heart great comfort. I remember meeting you at AWP and I was talking about Michelle Remembers and I was like gearing up to like explain what that is. And you were like, oh, I have experienced <laughs> that book and like all of its lunacy. And I was like, thank God, because it felt like it was this weird country that I'd been to that nobody else had heard of. He would not. It's like you, such an embarrassment of um, riches of baffling and horrifying things. And a true minefield, mm -hmm. too. You're like, I don't know how I'm going to talk yeah. about this to just anybody. <laughs> right. You're like, what? how do I begin? Yeah. And so I and I feel like the satanic panic, it feels like these seem to me like they're both movements that are born out of some kind of understanding and some kind of true understanding that like, it's hard to be a kid in America, which like, yes. And so in the 80s, it, like these both seem like fundamentally reasonable ideas, like it's bad for children to be sexually abused, which was like an under understood concept at the time. And kids should love themselves or appreciate themselves and that then gets turned into, you know, in the case of the satanic panic, a way to further marginalize queer people and to let uh, <laughs> the police railroad innocent bystanders into going to prison for a very long time, some of whom are still there. And also to kind of take a realization that like childhood sexual abuse is a real and endemic problem and then be like, but we're not going to be talking about like how this could be happening because maybe people in uh, unsafe family situations can't leave or take the kids because there aren't adequate services to provide for children if the abusive party in the family is also providing financial support. Like, we don't want to undermine the American family. We don't want to have a welfare state, which, of course, you know, you had uh, dear old Ronald mm -hmm. Reagan talking about in your episode about this. And I feel like the satanic panic, you know, among the many things that it did kind of is doing what you're talking about the self-esteem movement doing, which is saying like, we're noticing all these problems. And so we figured out a way to address them that doesn't cost very much money and that places all the blame or all the agency within the individual mm. in a, you know, in a way that really misses the point. Man, yeah. you're like making me think right now, what is the opposite? You know what? It's not opposite. It's like, what is a moral panic when it's doing the same thing? But now we can call it like a moral calming, right? <laughs> because it's like <laughs> you panic and the panic then makes you ignore systemic issues right. in, you know, in honor of serving a more interesting, fun, you know, we'll say fun when we mean sensational or exciting. And then, you know, one that places the onus back on the individual or on something so crazy that we can't possibly combat it with these sorts of systemic yeah. changes. But 
the moral calming is like, okay, we're all going to calm down because we don't have to worry about these systemic issues because all we have to do is believe in ourselves and do these. So it feels like they're very, like you said, they're very, uh, they're bedfellows. Yeah. And they, and of course they both are products of the eighties. Um, and it, it like feels very meaningful that they really resonate with the greed is good era, which I don't think we've, you know, ever really woken up from. Uh, Miranda popped into the chat here to call it national self-soothing, which I also like. <laughs> yeah, or like moral anesthesia, maybe. Yeah, that's a good one, too. That's like the big thing that's missing that that I hear is it's not necessarily missing, but like it's prescriptive, right? Like it, we we would call it national self-soothing. I think if like it, it there were a national effort to make that happen, but like really like what's happening is and this is, this is probably like the most political I'll ever get in in a in a podcast or like most Do overtly it. political I'll get is like that all still kind of suggests that we live in an actual democracy right like that <laughs> that that the country isn't just run by like billionaires and the uber wealthy who ultimately in one way or another set agendas as a form of reminding everyone that it's like, you're only going to get so much and you'll be lucky if you get it. So here is a lie that you can hopefully be, you know, soothed by in one way or another, because if you really were to pay attention to how fucked up things are, we're going to get in trouble. Right. And like the way to succeed is by fucking a hundred other people and like living on top of their prone bodies and mm. and it's yeah it's so it's such a strange american mythology to be like you know yeah that's how you succeed by being the most special and it's like okay but like in a country with this many people there have to be unspecial people and like don't they have rights shouldn't i just be yes. able to be like completely uh unexceptional and still have dental care <laughs> <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Moving on to kind of what you guys do uh, at, over at You Are Good Feelings Yag. Movies. <laughs> over at Yag. <laughs> you ready? What movie, right? If we're talking about self-esteem, but we're talking about it in the way that we value it, what childhood movie helped your sense of self and helped you feel seen like growing mm. up? We, we'll count it through teendom, but what movie did you watch kind of again and again that that provided you with with something soothing oh what a great question i think like labyrinth is the first one that comes to mind because like and that's a childhood through adolescence movie and i you know it's got a heroine who's quite self-possessed uh, which is always something interesting to try and emulate especially when for me, I definitely got the message that like self-possession in young girls is kind of like dangerous and tends to piss people off. And so the idea of a fantasy realm where you can actually have that was very exciting. I'm actually going to say too, Labyrinth and um, Adventures in Babysitting, which are almost the same movie, except Adventures in Babysitting doesn't have like a sexually menacing anti-hero anywhere in it really although it should and <laughs> it's the city of chicago the right, city of chicago is. is the section <laughs> you're right the, it is the city like it's instead of david bowie you have chicago itself and how the answer to your plight is to realize that like the answers are inside of you you have no power over me i'm still in control here i'm still the babysitter <laughs> and yeah and just i don't know and i feel like labyrinth really 
Labyrinth does a thing that I don't really have language for, but I feel like probably exists somewhere out there of like giving you what you think you want or what you kind of want and then letting you have the wish fulfillment of it in order to kind of cathartically realize that it's not what's going to be good for you in the long term, which in this case is having like a controlling older goblin boyfriend. <laughs> it's an important lesson to learn as a child. I it think. is. I mean, if not for that movie, I would be married to a goblin right now doing my goblin baby's laundry. <laughs> oh How about you, Alex? Um, mine is, this is, I mean, this is such a cliche. So I have like, I have like a cliche one and then I have one that I got into when I was a little bit older. My cliche one is just the Goonies, you know, cause it's like, I mean, it's so on the nose. It's like kids are in trouble because developers are going to ruin their lives. Kids find treasure and find themselves and then fuck the developers. <laughs> and that meant a lot to me, like just seeing kids. We talk so much about this in the show is like movies about like boys that are friends in one way or another, obviously movies that are girls, girls that are friends as well, but like, like movies that were kids are friends. Like there's a real in interesting, like innocence to these sorts of movies where the protagonist, protagonist finds some sort of empowerment through a plight and then come out at them like it feels like a fairy tale and I like that a whole lot and then later in my it must have been in my early teens I must have been 12 or 13 there's a movie called Manny and Low which is Scarlett Johansson's first movie I came out in like the mid 90s and it's just like about these two runaways who leave their their foster home and one of them gets pregnant and they, they are saved by Mary Kay Place, who I love so much. But like, I I just remember one of the characters, like the character that gets pregnant is just not likable, but is still, again, like worthy of this adult's love. And I found that to be, I don't know, there was it was extremely redeeming. It's like what Sarah was saying earlier, where it's like, all of us can't be winners, but for the ones who are not necessarily winners, don't we deserve something too? Um, this movie answered that for me in a big, big way. And that felt extremely soothing and I watched it a lot so much in my high school experience like every high schooler realizes the hypocrisy in one way or another but like I I had like I think like over the course of like one or two years like four teachers got in trouble for basically like like some sort of sexual impropriety with students and and I just remember like constantly being like once that clicked and then like, you know, school Columbine happened when I was 16 and just like it felt like and that my mom worked for the Catholic Church around this time, like all these things were happening where I was like all of the people who are telling me how to be don't have any ground to stand on. And it felt like it happened real hard, real fast that it clicked, you know, it clicked. So like the idea that anyone could be talking about like the import of self-esteem in one way or another, when I was a teenager, like I had the Daria response and thank God, like Daria was on TV at that time because it gave me someone to relate with. And the way that that like manifested later that I felt vindicated by was in Donnie Darko, right? Where like, where I, who is like, who is that woman to Donnie outside of like his, his sister's dance instructor? Like, is she a guidance counselor? But they, they basically talk about, the, you know, the spectrum of love and fear and all of your responses are either on the love end or the fear end. Um, um, and I, and you know, Donnie sort of calls, calls that out. And I remember just being like, 
I remember that feeling again, it's like another pretty on the nose thing, but just it really exemplifying this feeling that I had that I never really put into words, which was like all of these people who are telling me how to be and how to be well and how to be measured and how to feel good, just have no authority to do so. Yeah, what's going on in your yeah, life? Yeah, exactly, exactly. And it was just seeing this like this this person who in that movie universe was doing the same. I was like, oh, thank God other people feel this way. What was yours, Chelsea? Thank you for asking. Um, <laughs> I did want to talk about thank it. God. Um, now and then. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, I love now and then. <laughs> there's something about that. It's a hero's journey, but in a group. And there's just no other time in your life, I don't think, where you have the same feeling of of possibility with your friends like that. And it's kind of the same in <laughs> It, but in It, it's like... yeah flipped on its head right and it's like stand the, by me too and stand by me yeah like the darkness of of that as well and kind of discovering the darkness of being a young person who's coming into their adolescent yeah. years all the things that start to happen very queer movie too yeah. did you guys know that that she went on the person who did it i marlene king went on to do pretty little liars no. isn't that weird no, that's so great. It's so funny that when you said, when I was talking about like movies about, you know, like groups of boys and then movies about groups of girls, I was thinking explicitly about now and then. When I bet. You, <laughs> so yep. that, I like, you mean yeah. girls stand by me? Yes, girls, girls stand by me. <laughs> I love any movie and I love movies that commit this sin, not a sin, because like you had, we need some of them, but I, I think it goes overboard in terms of ratios. But like, I love movies where we get girls that are friends without the movie deciding that it's like, this is now too much friendship and <laughs> they're going to start doing dark magic or crime or whatever. And I love those movies too. And of course, I'm okay. specifically referring to The Craft and Hustlers, which I watched last night and which always makes me cry because it dares to have the central relationship be between two women and the men are just like totally at the periphery, just a succession of that fucking guys. Mm. For our wrap up here, I think it's interesting that both of you at different points, I think today, have mentioned the embarrassment <laughs> around the idea of self-help, right? And I mean self-help in a broad, the broadest sense of the term right now. So like, what makes us feel embarrassed, do you guys think, in terms of as, as ubiquitous as the self-esteem movement and, and these self-help movements and sort of the ability for us to feel comfortable going to therapy, feel comfortable even going on medication, and all the ways that we address all of us share different mental health issues. I think that's yeah, obvious sure by now. Do. But um, <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I, I guess I'm interested in the embarrassment factor that still exists around this this very broad sense of finding ways to feel peace, I feel is almost like the the very bottom of this. Well, I, I see. So for me, it's two answers. And one answer I didn't even know until relatively recently. But like the, the biggest answer for me or the one that immediately comes to me is that I, I don't like being duped. You know, I don't like something feeling like too easy or on the nose and answer. And that has a lot to do with like my, my Calvinist New England background, I think. And so like, usually when I look at a self-help book that's marketed as a self-help book, I get the sense 
that there's a duping that's happening in one way or another, or there's some sort of manipulation. And I, I, that's not necessarily always a fair characterization, but that's like kind of what gives me the no feeling. And that's what makes me embarrassed about about it. It's not the pursuit. I think the pursuit is extremely important. And I think like I've pursued all sorts of fucking wacky manifestations of, of, of my path and my journey. So I have no, it's not to, say negative things about anyone who is on a journey and and what that journey looks like it's it's largely about the industry that i'm skeptical of but the other thing like this the the social element that i hadn't really thought of because like you know i think we do live in this unique time and there's some pluses and minuses to the mechanics of it but like there we live in a unique time where we can talk relatively openly about the different manifestations of mental health issues that that we have again i think like the ways that it's categorized the ways that it happens on social media there's like a lot of potentially very problematic elements of that but it's great that we can speak openly about it. I've was born in 1983. So like there's, there's at the very least, even though it was a very base conversation in the eighties, that conversation has been happening publicly in one way or another. It's just matured. I have been reading recently because I have this podcast called Nashville demystified, which is about like the sort of the secret histories of Nashville and understanding more how much mental health, mental ailment, basically like frailties of the mind, how that was used in one way or another in moral crusades, particularly against like shutting down houses of prostitution or like stealing children from women uh, and unwed mothers and just doing like all of these, you know, interesting, terrible, horrendous phenomena that happened in the early 1900s to the mid 1900s and have continued to happen one way or another since were all done under the guise of there was someone who had some mental purity and there were a lot of people who had deficiencies and those mm. people with deficiencies couldn't be trusted to do anything. And I increasingly realize how just baked into our culture that is, even in ways that I don't see. And I'm a person who talks about how acutely fucked up I am all the time. Uh, so, so I think that there's almost like a cultural shame where it's like, if I'm honest about this, like someone's going to steal my baby. Cause like, that's a literal thing that has happened or sterilize me. So I can never have any babies. Precisely. Yeah. Precisely. Yeah. So I think that there's just like the anti charlatanism piece, but then there's also just the like, it's scary to talk about this because I know someone is going to use this against me in a horrendous way, probably. Yeah. I mean, I feel like that connects with my answer, which I feel like, um, Chelsea, when you mentioned this episode topic, I asked you if you were going to include the Daria episode self-esteemsters, which I was so happy to hear in, in the mix. Um, yeah, that and... was totally dedicated to you. <laughs> oh, that makes me so happy. Yeah. And I feel like Daria, like, you know, nailed many things that felt, you know, to me made that show really special that I feel like other media that I had access to, at least in kind of middle school age, like wasn't putting its finger on. And one of the things it had, and that I think we now have in Bob's Burgers and probably a lot of other stuff I don't know about is like the unbelievably cringy and basically out for himself guidance counselor, who's like fully high on his own supply and like believes that he's helping these kids, but is really just trying to win a conflicty or whatever. I think the guy on Daria was a more pure hearted, but um, and I feel like like that was so cathartic for me as a tween because I was always the kid who was getting sent to the guidance counselor in elementary school. And it was because I had rough edges and I didn't know how to socialize. And it always felt punitive. 
And it always had this air of like, why can't you be normal? And if you if we're going to work on your self-esteem, it's so that we can like get you to take two self-esteems and be normal in the morning. The thing of being a kid who's at least trying to think critically about stuff and doesn't want to be duped and sees the world as I did as full of adults who are trying to dupe you to achieve their own ends all the time and having guidance counselors seeming to fall into that because I always felt like you don't want to help me. You just want me to not cause problems for you. Like I'm just supposed to fall in line and if not actually feel better than to at least give a reasonable impression of somebody who is. And I think that that kind of poisoned the well for me of trying to work on myself because it made it into something that I had to do for other people. And really, I think it was only in adulthood that I began to figure out and still am figuring out like that it actually can be for me. And it's not just something that I'm doing for the convenience of, uh, of the grownups in charge of me. And I mean, isn't that that was something we didn't include in our episode, but how psychologists tend to think that our obsession with self-esteem is more our parental slash authority figures obsession with our self-esteem and how that then reflects back on right. them. It's like, well, your kid is scoring a seven on the self-esteem barometer and it should be a nine. So are you working too much or what? <laughs> <laughs> the embarrassment's going to come when you're doing something so vulnerable. And like you said, Alex, I think it's just like, I was duped a lot. I was duped a lot, I feel like, by different self-help books because I was just so desperate, you know, just support groups, all kinds of stuff that wasn't necessarily a dupe and added a little bit, right? Because each one of these things, no matter how dupey they might be, <laughs> contains some kernel of truth. I feel like, I mean, just listening to your episode and having this conversation today, this like brings me back to what I feel like is one of the to me, one of the core things about trying to debunk as kind of the thing that you do for the public, which is that like, I think a lot of these ideas, at least in the United States that we get carried away with, like they're not wrong, or they're not entirely wrong. Like, I think there's pretty much always some kind of germ of truth to it. But it's like we take something that could be a solution to certain problems in certain contexts. And we're like, great, let's just stick this band aid on this leaky dam and be done for the day. And I feel like it's you know, you can debunk a concept without throwing away the, you know, the idea that there's any truth at all that originally got people excited about it. I think it's like it's not the tool, it's the way that we're using it a lot of the time. And it's it, it gets to the heart of this other part of this that is about kind of identifying in this totality. Like, I have high or low self-esteem. Like, it, it's a, some kind of weird totality. And your show is, it's not you're wrong, it's you're wrong about, <laughs> right? So it's sort of this thing of like, one aspect is wrong, you know? Like, one part of this thing that you think you know is wrong. <laughs> Didn't you say when we got on, you're good and yeah. wrong? We're all good and we're all wrong. <laughs> and how. <laughs> Well, thank you so much to both of you for coming on. It's always such a joy to talk to you guys on air or off. Oh, we love you so much. This is so great. Thank you, Chelsea. This was American Hysteria. If you need more self-esteem or you just want to get all the hottest dirt on Ayn Rand and Nathaniel Brandon's polyamorous, volatile relationship, well, boy, do I have a talk show for you. 
Just become a patron at patreon.com slash American Hysteria to get access to Hysteria Home Companion, where producer Miranda and I dive into all the juiciest stuff from the cutting room floor. That's patreon.com slash American Hysteria, and that episode will be up next Monday. Find You Are Good on Twitter and Instagram at YouAreGoodPod. Find Alex on Twitter at AlexSteed and on Instagram at KnackFactory. And find Sarah on Twitter at Remember underscore Sarah. This episode was hosted by me, Chelsea Weber-Smith, sound by Claire Camo Studios, and produced by Miranda Zickler. Thanks, as always, for listening, and heads up, catch this koosh ball. Here comes my compliment. You're making it through this life one way or another, and, uh, and that's something to celebrate. Oh, and I do really like your Tiny Tunes high top sneakers. All right, everybody, that was our conversation with Chelsea at American Hysteria. How much do you love that show if you don't already listen to it? Now we're going to uh, talk Go with our delightful friends BJ and Harmony Colangelo over at This Ends at Prom. Again, BJ and Harmony have been on the show before. BJ was here just a couple weeks ago talking about Jingle All the Way. And earlier last year, we talked with Harmony about Silence of the Lambs and how just because that movie is one of our favorites doesn't mean that it wasn't very harmful to trans people. I hope that you'll check that out. It's one of my favorite conversations we've ever had here. I love these two. I was so glad to be able to talk with them about Go. And yeah, let's get into it. Greetings and salutations. You're listening to This Ends at Prom, a podcast where I, teen movie apologist BJ Colangelo, show my wife, Harmony Colangelo, a seminal teen girl movie that I missed out on because I grew up as a teen boy. Is today's movie truly emblematic of womanhood? Or of rose-colored nostalgia glasses What your perspective? Circle yes, no, or maybe to find out if we're crowning a queen? Or if we're killing the teen dream. Welcome to This Ends at Prom. This Ends at Prom is a Pod People production. I don't wanna be your merch girl. I wanna be your goddamn idol. And I don't wanna have to work twice as hard for the same motherfucking title. But I realize that I probably won't be so lucky. Welcome back. Prom party. Hello. We are so glad that you are here to join us on a movie that is kind of uh, throwing something into a little left field compared to what we've been doing lately. We're going to go places. Ew. It's the name of the movie. How dare you? They're so subtle about it in the movie. This movie, honestly, though, (laughs) in rewatching it, I had a lot of Leo DiCaprio snap and point at screen moments because... I forgot how frequently they say the title of the movie in this one. <laughs> it's a single sentence, though. I'll tell you what. It was really frustrating trying to look up where this movie was, because when you type go, you will get anything else that isn't this movie. <laughs> yeah, that's, that is for sure. Friends, we are really excited, though, because if you haven't been able to hear from the slight chuckling in the background, we are not alone today. 
Why is it spooky? I don't know. I wanted it to be spooky. That's like my go-to voice whenever I have to say something. I turn into a Scooby-Doo villain, and I'm okay with that. That's just who I am. Yeah, it's true. But friends, our guest today and the person who chose this movie is responsible for a lot of you listening to us, because every other day on Patreon, somebody will message and be like, we started listening to this podcast because of Harmony on You Are Good, formerly Why Are Dads, which is always really exciting. So friends, daddy's home. <laughs> and this week we are joined by one of the co-hosts of You Are Good, formerly Why Are Dads, the amazing Alex Steed. Hi, Alex. Hello. I'm so excited. This is great. I love your show so, so much. I love your show so, so much. And so this is the best. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so glad that you're able to be here and we're, we're able to like kind of complete the circle of now being on each other's shows. And absolutely. Well, total, and we're going to com- we're going to double the circle because Harmony, excuse me, because BJ will have to come on the show and then Sarah will have to go on your mm-hmm. show. And yes. then it'll be it'll be the double rainbow all the time. And then the cycle resets. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Some beast is unleashed from under <laughs> under the earth. God, we can only ideally. Hope. Yeah. <laughs> so, Alex, oh. what movie did you bring to us today? So I brought to you the movie Go, which we were chatting right before we started recording. And it's a movie that was very formative from when it came out. And I haven't seen it since when it was formative for me. So mm-hmm. I know it's a movie I, I'd watched a handful of times. I know very well. I remembered kind of all of the parts, but it's unique in that I don't think I've seen this movie for at least 20 years. Mm-hmm. So oh, wow. it was... It was fascinating to go from it, it, watching this movie that definitely had an imprint on me that I remembered it being like, a, I mean, it's not really in retrospect, but it feeling at the time like a sophisticated teen movie because mm-hmm. it showed <laughs> teens being reckless assholes in the way that I was when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. And and I felt represented by that in a way I didn't feel represented by like Blaine in a... In, um, uh, pretty in pink. And so, so that felt really important to me. And so I really, I think wanted to talk about and explore that a little bit, but also just to have an excuse to revisit this. <laughs> That's wonderful. This is, this is definitely a favorite of mine. That is one of those movies that I forget is a favorite of mine until I watch it. It's like, oh yeah, no, I really enjoy this movie. Um, Harmony, what is your history with this movie? If at all? I didn't know this was a movie. I had no idea what this was. I'd never heard of it. And uh, I got to say, as far as like Tarantino for teens goes, this is a wild experience. <laughs> so that, that's exactly what it is. It's Tarantino for teens. That's exactly what this movie is. And I'm really glad. I think that... a little clerks, a little dollar. Oh, yeah, clerks. absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And I'm really glad that you brought that up because that's, I think, the last time that I watched this movie was when I was in college taking like mm. intro to film whatever the fuck and having a bunch of guys being like, well, Tarantino's an auteur. And it's like, yeah, well, have you seen Go? <laughs> like, let me push up my hipster glasses a little harder. Because it's also important to note that there is a, like, slight generation gap between us. Um, because mm. I'm on the, uh, I guess, middle part of a millennial. I think I'm, like, a true-to-form millennial. I'm born in 1990. So I'm nine years old when this movie came out. Mm. And 
I'm not going to ask you how old you are, Alex, but I presume I'm you, 38. I was like, I I'm presume an, you were a teenager when this. Came yeah, out. I'm like the very oldest millennial. I'm like the oldest, oldest millennial before you get deep into that, like uh, cusp territory that a lot of people talk about, like the Xennial thing. Although I, I kind of I that resonates with me because a lot of my friends were older, et cetera, et cetera. But yeah, this came out like wet solidly when I was a teenager and it came out in the middle of the pop techno uh, thing that mm-hmm, happened mm-hmm. in the Uni- in the United States because, like you know, like Maine caught up with uh, uh, techno, uh, you know, t- ten to fifteen years after, <laughs> 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 and that was important. And and you know, you could you could go to like raves in the woods here, like there, you know, there, there, uh, it caught a lot of what was going on in teen life, and again, it felt sophisticated. Um, in ways that I think actually are sophisticated, but in re- in retrospect, you know, it feels feels a little funny. I like that Maine caught up just in time for Y two K. That's <laughs> we that's caught funny. up for like Limp Bizkit. We were like, all right, <laughs> let's, <laughs> let's move on. I guess I don't know. Limp Bizkit's yeah. having a resurgence right now, and I'm not happy it's about wild. it. <laughs> it's absolutely wild. Yeah, it's wild. Everyone's uh, like hearing Fred Durst just be like, man, uh, you should get vaccinated in the middle of a concert. Everyone's like, dude, is Fred Durst actually a cool dude? And I'm like, he's not. He's just not an idiot. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Well, it's the same thing happened with Axl Rose a number of years ago is like Axl Rose would like would talk shit to Trump all the time on Twitter. And uh, and people were like, what, Axl? And it's like, yeah, he's still terrible, yeah. but <laughs> he's doing a good thing right now. We're messy. We're a messy species. You can, you can be both. You can hate Trump and be a bad person. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, I can. <laughs> all, all I can think about now with like modern Fred Durst is that he he made his movie. Oh no! Uh, with Devin Sawa, who is re- genuinely doing the best that he can. Seems mm-hmm. so great. Yeah, yeah. He's he's doing a very good job in it. But it's, you know, Devin Sawa and, and John Travolta. And at one point, Devin Sawa is driving with, I think, like his kid. And he's listening to Limp Biscuit on the radio. That's great. And he's like, you ever heard of this? Limp Biscuit, <laughs> like song for a generation, like some like really uh. cheesy thing. And I'm like, oh, Fred, why did you do uh. that to him? Why did you make Devin Sawa say these things? Uh, I mean, that's a sad time. I'll be saying, though, Roland does slap. Get out. Does I would I would say <laughs> I would also stand by for what it was. I will not make excuses for it necessarily, <laughs> but I will stand by the Faith remake, the George Mike. I, I can, think that's an okay cover. I can yeah. I as a as a cover from the late nineties goes, it makes sense. Yeah, I mean, is it any better or worse than like the Smooth Criminal cover? No, um, it's not. or yes, maybe it is. Maybe mm-hmm. BJ. BJ will argue. I'd say that they're pretty well even. Honestly, I'm not going to defend Limbiscuit. I'd say that they're doing more adventurous stuff than Alien Ant Farm are because they're basically just like, hey, it's smooth criminal, but now there's guitars and it's kind of like new metal, but not really. Yeah, I you got, guess. You, for, for, you, for you at home, I'm watching some serious tension on my screen. <laughs> I just can't get behind like Fred Durst taking over. George Michael and like completely oh, fair. De- completely de-gaying that song. Oh, At least yeah, Alien Ant Farm is like smooth criminal. It's still going to be like poppy and upbeat and fun. 
That's just that's where I sit on that. Yeah, that I mean, totally, uh, that's a that's a great point. They really sucked. <laughs> they really sucked every ounce of queerness out. Of that yeah, faith is very fun. <laughs> still, if you like punching walls in your spare time. <laughs> Yes. Beautiful. <laughs> well, speaking of punching walls, uh, Harmony, <laughs> what was going on culturally in 1999? Oh, God. When um, I feel like we were like getting into that new metal, let's break stuff and yell about our dads uh, sort of time frame. But I want to know what's going on cinematically. So what oh. landscape did Go pop into? I mean, I'll tell you what. I don't know if any of these movies involve a lot of wall punching because <laughs> stuff like Fight Club is not on the list because it's not really a true to form teen movie, even though teens were obsessed with it because and they you know, still cinema are. oh i but, was that 16 year i was that insufferable asshole I'm, <laughs> I'm so excited to hear what else came out on this list because i'm sure i saw it all oh god um so we've covered 1999 and like looking back on it in other other films but i will say that uh 99 is probably the most stacked year for teen movies period is this the she's all that year Oh, okay. Yeah, this is a stacked. Oh, this year. <laughs> is the most stacked year for teen movies possible. So here's a quick laundry list of things that were released this year. And then I'll get to a little side thing at the side. So things that came out this year are 10 things I hate about you. Jawbreaker. Oh. But I'm a cheerleader. Holy shit. Drive me crazy. Oh. The Rage Carry 2, which BJ loves. <laughs> My sweet angel neglected I can't baby. It came out that long ago. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and because this is a movie that it's also kind of teen boyish, I'm going to highlight a few of the major teen boy movies like American Pie, Jeez. Detroit Rock City. Yes. Oh, yeah. Which I love. And Varsity the Edward Blues. Furlong classic. Oh, yes. God. I mean, I own the poster for Detroit Rock City. It's, yes. it's incredible. And. When we really want to get into like cinema of teen <laughs> stuff, you get things like The Virgin Suicides, oh, Cruel wow. Intentions, and I guess American Beauty. Yeah, this is totally yeah. this is that's su- this is such a great point. Like I said this on the podcast once and I had to correct or clarify to so many people, but I was like I was talking about like when I was a kid and I liked cinema, mm-hmm. you know, and like, and, and someone was like, is it cinema with like an S? Like what movie is that? I was like, no, 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 no. Like I was a pretentious shithead that like <laughs> watched this wave of movies that came out at this time. And then like independent movies that came out like a couple years before and like going back like to Manny and mm-hmm. Low, and then like just independent mid nineties movies. And I liked cinema and like this. Yeah, this was a huge year for honoring 16 year old boys who liked cinema. Yes. I mean, I remember being like 14 and thinking Donnie Darko was the deepest movie I'd ever of seen. Course. <laughs> yeah. Of course. So, of course. <laughs> I mean, Absolutely. yeah, this is really where we're starting to, um, like, the formula of the 90s has been completely solidified for teen movies. This is also the year, like, the first full year we had DCOMs. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Smart House and Don't Look Under the Bed and Johnny Tsunami and all these other things were coming out. Mm. And I will say that I, I, I think we were trying to step outside and redefine what we could do with teenage stories. And I think Go does it in a way that nothing else was at the time. And that probably worked to its detriment. Mm. Because a, a lot of the movies I listed, like Jawbreaker or But I'm a Cheerleader, were not really successful at the time. They became cult classics later on. But just looking at the even the month that Go was released, it went up against Idle Hands, Election, and released on the same day, Never Been Kissed. 
Oh, holy crap. Yeah, Election was another huge one for me as like a teen movie that wasn't really a teen movie. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously it wasn't in retrospect, but I was like, Reese Witherspoon's in this. Like this is, and I saw it and it just fucking blew my brain out of my (laughs) head. There's a teen in it. There, <laughs> there are multiple teens in it. Yeah, <laughs> there's that. There's that. That that dense guy from the American Pie movies. Yeah, oh, Chris. It's, it's, yeah, like we that. got Chris Klein, who is forever my favorite shitbag in Just Friends when he's playing guitar. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes, Dusty, the little sister character whose name I always forget, but she's like a baby dyke, and I love her very much because she also gives no fucks, and I really wanted to be like her growing up. But I was Tracy Flick, and I accept that. <laughs> oh my god, that's that's fantastic. This was also like the same. Uh, this was the same year that I had to look this up to realize it was the case. But like, sp- it was the same like cluster of years that like Splendor and Nowhere came out, which were like Greg Araki movies. Mm-hmm. And James Duvall, who was in this, like kind of in passing, was in those movies. And I remember being like so into that. So there were all these like. There were teen movies and then there were like very alternative teen movies that were mm-hmm, still mm-hmm. that still felt like possible, not just like possible, but like a little dangerous in a way that um, I don't know. It really it kind of it spoke to me and it, it gave me especially again, like being a kid in rural Maine, like it gave me a window into being like, oh, OK, like some other stuff is happening that other people are acknowledging. That's good to know. There's this very interesting trend that we are playing in in the late 90s, where we have things like Gregoraki and New Queer Cinema, which is also why, like, Jamie Babbitt falls into this. But then at the same time, we're also getting this, like, weird... You can't call it Uncanny Valley. That's not completely (laughs) accurate. But this really interesting look at kind of poverty suburbia, if that makes sense. Like, a lot of, like, Todd Salon's Mm -hmm. films, Kevin Smith films, where you're dealing with this subsection of America that really hasn't been highlighted before outside of like here's the one poor character in a John Hughes movie it's like no this is about working class people who are dealing with a lot of like weird stuff and here's the way we all live and it's weird no one has these beautiful like three-story homes and no one's like these ultra pretty people it's like kind of fucked up and I think that was something people really resonated with because that representation is important and then you know, we we immediately jump into the 2000s, which is as uh, as Bruce LeBruce calls it, the decade of bad straight camp, where everything <laughs> is really shiny and trying so hard to be progressive that it oh, like, God. sucks yeah. out any of the edge. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, uh, it felt I felt very alone in that decade. Like I felt like <laughs> I didn't understand what was going on on screens. Yeah, it's a decade that made me just like feel really bad about myself because then everybody was the prettiest person I had ever seen in my life. And I'm like, this is not relatable. I need to go back to watching Welcome to the Dollhouse because that's where I fit in. Absolutely. Oh, wiener dog. It it was not a a decade of the everyman or woman, I don't think. it's so it's so interesting that you say that thing about like it's like they're working class and they're like literally working and I didn't mm-hmm. even I never put that together as like this is probably a huge reason why this movie resonated is 
I started working under the table for, I think, four seventy-five an hour washing dishes at age 12. I spent like the majority of my teenage working and to see like, and I'm realizing this now is like just we open seeing Sarah Polly working mm-hmm. and, and like, she's also like, I, I think Sarah Polly is outstanding in any number of ways. Um, but she's also like, she's not traditionally like Hollywood beautiful. Like mm-hmm. she looks like someone who you know and someone who you like and someone who's like a little weird. And I like that a lot about, I like like how resonant these people were in the same way. And this is another thing that's probably weirdly revealing. Like I loved kids as a, as a kid mm-hmm. because I was like, there's not an adult to be seen, which reminded me so much of my childhood where it was like, no one's in charge. It feels really dangerous there's no adults around here. These kids are just fending for themselves. And I was like, I, that is a reality I feel in a really big way. Mm-hmm. I love that. So in speaking of Go, Alex, if you had to explain to somebody what this movie is about, <laughs> which I know, not the easiest thing, not the easiest ask, uh, what is Go about? It, so it's, it's, there's three stories that are told back to back. One story is about, um, a young woman who's a who's a teenager who gets involved in uh, some drug shenanigans, buying and selling in order to make rent, and a number of uh, uh, things happen as a result that center around a a, a rave and a drug deal gone bad. Um, there is a story of a guy named Simon who, along with his friends, goes to Vegas uh, for a bachelor party and gets into a lot of just like a lot of inexcusable trouble (laughs) Um, um, because he just like, because he leans so hard into being a straight white guy. Like that's basically like what happens is like he leans Mm -hmm. so hard into that, that like everything it comes back at him in a Mm -hmm. really, in in a really interesting way. And then, um, And then the third story is a story about these two um, uh, secretly gay actors who um, who as a means of trying to get out of like a a drug, I don't know, like a a drug arrest. I think it's like a Uh, possession charge. Yeah, there's they they end up setting up the teenager that we meet in the first uh, who's played by Sarah Polly. What is her name? I can't remember. Uh, Rana. Rana, that's it. By setting up by setting up Rana in a in a drug sting, that doesn't go exactly as planned. And they get cornered into what we think is going to be a um like a swinger proposition. And it ends up just being this police officer and his wife trying to get them into a um MLM marketing scheme. <laughs> Which and this is, is a so teen good. movie that I loved. <laughs> And I and I realize and I realize like a lot of the things that I thought were smart and interesting as a whole in this movie. This movie is very uneven. It's very clunky um, in retrospect. But a lot of the things that I remember being brilliant are Sarah Polly's performance. She's so great as Rana. Mm-hmm. And then a uh, fucking God, what's his name? The drug dealer, um, uh, Timothy Oliphant. Yeah, God, Tim- just remember him. Period. Ah, uh, he's forever my favorite dirtbag in any movie ever. Totally. And this was like him. This was such a proper introduction to what he would be for the rest of his career is exactly that. Just like the hottest dirtbag. And, and, but the thing that I remember so much is this, the tension of this Mm -hmm. scene in which we think 
that there's going to be a proposition to be involved in this sort of swinging relationship with this married couple. And it's actually them selling consolidated these, this like Amway like product, which is like much, I'm not saying that like swinging is sad, but like it's, it's, <laughs> it's what they end yeah. up proposing is way more awkward than the thing you think is going to be proposed. And I remember that feeling so brilliant as a kid. Um, so that's a thing that stands out my memory more than <laughs> almost anything else. Well, Irene and I, sort of had an ulterior motive for inviting you here tonight. He makes it sound sinister. It's not. No, I don't. <laughs> She's right. Okay. Okay. You've looked around our place. Where do you think we got most of this stuff? Just guess. Sears? J.C. Penny? It's actually from Confederated Products. Almost everything in this house is from Confederated products, from the toilet paper to the, to, to the candles, to the ham. The, the wine. The wine, the wine, it, even that cologne you liked. You see, Confederated products is a multi-level direct wholesaling company, which means we don't just sell the products ourselves. No, sir, you Bob. We recruit and manage teams that work under us. Now, Irene and I started eight months ago, and already we're pulling in 50000 a year in revenues. We're the number four distributor in Southern California. You got that one, babe. And by March, we might be number three. The whole aspect of that scene and that story specifically that I kept coming back to was if anyone could get me to sign up for an MLM, it would be Jane Krakowski. So. <laughs> totally. Same. Totally. To- absolutely. And, and f- we just like the weirdest, most in- like William Fickner at his weirdest. He's yeah. so like, weird in this movie. He plays a lot of weirdos, but he's exceptionally weird here. Just walking around dick out. And like, fondling like, guys' abs. Right. <laughs> you can do your laundry on these abs. I love, oh my God, I love love it one of the things that like didn't age well in retrospect that you'd think i'd remember but it just shows how much times have changed for me at least in in my my viewing is breckenmeyer drops the n-word in this movie uh and his his rationale is that his like he you know i think he's, his mother's he's, mother is black so he yeah, claims totally. <laughs> mm-hmm. totally he says it right to uh so what what happened? Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he says it just like so offhandedly in the car, and then Tay Diggs is there looking at him like, "What?" And like he doesn't like beat his ass or anything about it, but you can tell he's just like this idiot white boy. But okay, he also digs the hole deeper because he totally steals Tay Diggs' story about yes. getting a blowjob and accidentally unsticking a girl's con- uh, contact. So then it's like, oh, you asshole. And then he just is like, I'm just going to, I got a shovel. I'm just going to keep going. And then drops the (laughs) N word. Yeah. And and talking about, and so like talking about this being like Quentin Tarantino for teens, um, like a big thing Tarantino would do is he would write the N word for white characters. Right. Mm -hmm. And, 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 and then just like, it would be accepted within the universe of the movie in a way where it just really feels like Quentin Tarantino going like, look what I have allowed myself to do. Um, and, and in this, like someone, t- I'm not excusing it by any means. Like there's no, no reason for Breckenmeyer to have dropped the N word in this movie, but like the character is not likable at all. Uh-huh. And I do enjoy, I do enjoy that as like the least likable character next to Todd, the terrible drug dealer um, <laughs> who's likable because, because it's who it is. Uh, uh, th- that's who ends up saying it. And then there's also, um, 
uh, there's the, there's the F slur in this. And I didn't realize I was like, this movie had to have been written by a straight guy uh, when I watched a lot of the trans the initial transactions between the two actors. Once, pl- um, um, who, who plays them? Uh, uh, shoot. I can't remember the their, soap opera stars. Yeah. The soap opera. One stars. of them and is Jay I, Moore. <laughs> the other one. Jay Moore, yeah, Jay I Moore. never remember his name. Cause Jay I'm a Moore person. and party of five, party of Scott five Wolf? guys. Scott, Scott Wolf, Wolf there it is. I've got the IMDb up, <laughs> and, I, and I just and I realize and and so first of all, I re- I found out that John August, who wrote it, is is not he's a, he's a gay man. But the um, I just realized that they are so they as actors are just so painfully straight. Yes, <laughs> that, yes, they are. That that they turn the text straight. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I agree completely. And it it we we talk a lot in the show about how teen movies are time capsules of when they came out. And I have this really like awful feeling where as much as I hear Breckenmeyer say that, and I'm like, that's not acceptable and was never acceptable. And why did you do that? But the late nineties is also when like the popularity of Eminem started happening and white kids in the suburbs were like, oh, yeah. it's cool for me to like rap now. I can say this because that's what's in the rap oh, songs. Totally. And everyone's like, no, you fucking cannot. But, but there were definitely those kids <laughs> That did. So I like look at this character and I'm like, oh, I hate you so much, but you're also not inaccurate. And that's so bad. You are a snapshot of a very specific suburban kid or a very specific white kid. And here's the thing. Like a lot of I I remember being like 10 years old at around the turn of the millennium. And uh, yeah, there was a lot of people who suddenly were like, I listened to Dr. Dre because I got into him through Eminem. And I'm going to say the N word because why not? And Eminem specifically says like, Hey, I'm not going to do that at all. Like, granted, he'll he'll say every other slur in the under <laughs> right. the sun, but he doesn't drop the N-word. And I would like to say that I learned from Eminem and not the white people I was around growing up that you're not supposed to say the N-word. <laughs> yeah. So I took the right thing away. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, I, I, VJ, it's so interesting that you say that because I... I watched the movie through a very similar lens where I was like, I don't love what this character is doing, but this character is doing a lot of things. I saw people I went to high school with Mm -hmm. do Mm -hmm. like, like I, there was a whole coalition of kids in particular who in my high school, like Eminem had, had happened like in the, probably when I was like a sophomore or junior became like, became Mm well-known, but like there was a group of kids that, um, that I went to high school with who loved Tupac and they were very they, of white kids. I mean, I went to school again in rural Maine at white kids and there was a very similar, you could have found that Breckenmeyer character in that group of kids. Yeah. I mean, this is also the same year that we have 10 things I hate about you where we have Mr. Morgan yelling at the white Rastafarian <laughs> kids from the Pacific Northwest. <laughs> so like this is unfortunately a thing that uh-huh. white teens did. And as ugly and awful as it is, like it, it is that time capsule of like, look what we used to think was like kind of okay. Mm-hmm. Like that's yes. wild as hell to me. And I know the same thing goes with the F slur and Harmony could speak on it better than I do. One of her favorite uses of the F slur is in a Tarantino oh, movie yes. and she uses it all the time. Okay. Here, here's a wild thing about this. Uh, this is a strange story. <laughs> also, this movie has a trunk scene. So, uh, hello, Tarantino. <laughs> Tarantino. But, uh, no, I actually started bartending again for the first time proper since moving to LA and there's a wine we sell there. Um, and I'm going to misquote this, but the, the name of the wine is, uh, it's a rosé and I think it's called like 
why why do I have to be Mr. Pink? Mm-hmm. Like they, they <laughs> named their wine that, and I'm like, that's cute. I don't think you realize that the line that follows that in Revers- Reservoir Dogs is, because you're a faggot. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I love that line delivery. It is one of the funniest things to me. She says that to me at least once a week. Like, I'll do something, <laughs> oh. and then she just busts it out. And I'm like, you're right. You're absolutely right. And I did do this because And it's so perfect that Steve Buscemi. So, like, uh, I, yeah. yeah, it's... I, I, I'm not mad about it because I go, yeah, that's correct for a character like that to say. But like yeah. thematically, it's appropriate. It doesn't mean I'm happy about it, but at least it's funny. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, totally. I mean, it's so, yeah, there's a lot, there's a lot that happens here because it fits the context. Mm-hmm. And I, I was actually, I was surprised. I was surprised actually at how much of it fit the context and how a lot of it felt Again, like a lot of stuff I think feels clunky in this to me now in retrospect, but mm-hmm. like I um I don't know, I, th- I think it like it, it aged better than I expected it to, but there were also a lot of parts that felt very dated. Like again, having having Breckin Myers in there. Yeah. I had to like I like had to, <laughs> I doubled it did a double take. I was like, that's it's Breckin Oh yeah, okay. He doesn't really talk about this role very often. I can understand why. <laughs> Why don't you pull your stinky dinky out my ass? I'm just trying to make conversation. Fuck. There was a piece that came out a few years back um, on The Ringer called Don't Let It Go Away, The Frantic, Furious Making of a Cult Movie Classic. And they talk about how this movie sort of came to be. And there's some interesting things that I want to share because it is kind of mind-blowing to me. Mm. So... This movie is directed by Doug Lyman, who made Swingers, which was like a huge success. Mm-hmm. Um, people really loved it. It kind of sparked the careers of Vince Vaughn and John Favreau. So, like, that's a- that's another cinema classic. I enjoy. Yeah, yeah. Cinema, <laughs> Italian hand motions. So, so then they, they, you know, what what do I do next? And the next thing that was pitched to him is a movie we actually covered for one of our commentary tracks on the Patreon. Heartbreakers. Oh, God. Um, oh, yeah. I love that movie so much. so funny. Um, but yeah, he yeah. was pitched Heartbreakers, and it was like, here's a humongous studio comedy, silver platter, here you go. And an interesting thing about Doug Lyman is that he's a director and not a screenwriter. And this is like late 90s is when we're starting to get like this new auteur wave where people are writing and directing their, their own material. And mm-hmm. he's like, that's not me. I direct scripts that I get. So um, he he's like, okay, cool. I guess I'm gonna make this huge movie. And then his like the producer calls him and is like, hey, I found this script. It fucking rules. I think you should you should do it. And he he gets it. And his his managers are basically like, okay, well, you can do this indie film, but if it doesn't do well, then like it's gonna be really hard for you to do studio stuff in the future. But if you do this Heartbreakers movie, like, no matter how good or bad it does, like, you're kind of set because you made a studio comedy. Mm-hmm. And he said no to Heartbreakers and yes to go. And fortunately, like, he has had a, a successful career where he's made things like Mr. and Mrs. Smith and, like, has done, like, humongous gangbuster numbers at the box office. But even today, tw- like, over 20 years later, Go is still his favorite movie he's ever made. That's, like, that. a nicer, more successful story version of that slumber party massacre story yes oh my god yes (laughs) which didn't end i think as well career-wise but 
Yeah, it's for, a very for, similar <laughs> risk. For those that don't know, the director of Slumber Party Massacre turned down editing E.T. to direct Slumber Party Massacre, which and, is and gave us all a gift as a result, and we appreciate it. Agreed. And she she claims that she doesn't regret her decision, and I like to believe she's telling the truth. That's great. <laughs> but um, here's what he had to say about why he chose to do this, and I love this. So unlike other marquee indie directors of the era, Lyman wasn't a writer, so he wasn't generating his own material. And it was the ethos driving Go's script that convinced him to pick up the project. I had a charmed youth in that I did a lot of crazy things and no one ever got hurt, he says. I had this belief that you have a get-out-of-jail-free card when you're 18, and I recognize there's a lot of white privilege connected to that get-out-of-jail-free card now because I wasn't as sensitive at the time because I only knew my own experience. But what I saw in Go was a story that was celebrating do crazy shit while you're young because you can get away with it when you're young. Totally. I wrote down, I wrote like three notes watching this movie because I remembered so much. And I just wrote, this movie is about bouncy teens. <laughs> I like <laughs> it's bouncy like, you ever teens. See, do you ever see like, you ever see like a seven-year-old like fall in the ground and like <laughs> yes. their bodies like fucking made of rubber and they like literally like bounce? Like <laughs> this movie reminds me of like that energy that you have when you're 17. Oh yeah. I'm a staunch follower of the kids getting hurt Instagram page. So <laughs> I'm very familiar with the resiliency and bouncy of children they're very malleable. yeah <laughs> literally i mean we see we see sarah Polly get hit by a car and just be fine and i watched my cousin a 13 year old girl it who was like built exactly like sarah Polly, get hit by a car backing out of a driveway and she was absolutely nonplussed because she needed to get to the beeper store to get her beeper fixed that's a story about the 90s in the north shore <laughs> But for real though, like when 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 this all comes around, we have our three stories kind of resolve, and we get kind of our epilogue. And she comes rolling up to the grocery store after getting hit by a car. <laughs> I turn to BJ and go, "Yeah, no, that happened to me. I got hit by a car and then went back to work the next day totally. with a bad back, and my job totally. was to lift things." Yeah, absolutely, it's so resonant. It's crazy. <laughs> And I think that's like a a very real thing that we never see in movies is this idea of not even just resiliency, because, yeah, I do think there's a level of resiliency to it. But also, like, that's an action out of necessity. She has rent to pay. Yes. Like, yeah, she absolutely. she almost totally. didn't make rent this month. So, like, yeah, she, she can't afford that. She sure as shit can't afford the emergency room. Like, that's not... That's not something she can. Yeah, pay well, she for. literally, she literally almost got. I mean, and this is a thing. Like, not to turn this super serious, but that's an important thing. It's like you know, all the people who, throughout COVID, m- many many of us just literally had to like risk our safety because we couldn't afford not to work, mm-hmm. and like mm-hmm. that's something that's so resonant. And like, we j- literally just saw her almost die Mm -hmm. several times to get her rent paid like she has to go back to work Mm -hmm. and that's something that absolutely resonates with the vast majority of my life agreed completely yeah this is kind of like how you see people who refuse to take ambulances and instead take an uber to the hospital Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it, it's it's not like three grand out the gate. Yeah, this isn't this is the 1999 version of that horrible hellscape we live in. Absolutely, totally, totally, totally. That's yeah, and I, I I love that. I love the labor read on this, which like I haven't spent a lot of time with, but um, I just didn't do so many things as a kid because I was working, mm-hmm. like like clerks resonated with me in such a big way. Obviously, because it was written by like a 
grown up boy. Um, and it resonated <laughs> with me as a kid, but it resonated. I realized in retrospect, it resonated because it's about two people at work, which is like how I spent the majority of my time as a teenager. Uh-huh. And again, just like seeing teens work and then the stuff they do in between shifts. We don't know anything about their school and we don't know anything about their parents. Like that was my lived experience. <laughs> <laughs> That's that's so real, though, because everything that we know about these people, like, is based solely on those interactions. Like, I know exactly who Simon is based on how he's trying to get <laughs> Rana to take his shift. Like, yeah, totally. he's <laughs> kind of a scumbag. It's This is also a Christmas movie, and I love any movie <gasps> yeah. that has, like, that tinge of Christmas. We talked about this a little bit during our Christmas in July episode for Night of the Comet, which is also set in Los oh, Angeles. Yeah. Los Angeles Christmas doesn't look like the way we normally see Christmas mm-hmm. in movies. So it adds like this extra layer of something is off, you know, like it just the world feels off because it's Christmas. There's mistletoe, there's holidays, but there's no snow. And it feels like that sucks out that like Christmas magic that exists. And instead you're like, where am I? What is this wasteland? Well, yeah, totally. it's like when you watch any Christmas movie, there's the freaking it's like the end of that one chipmunk song where it's like, look, Dave, it's snowing. Like the snow is Christmas magic sprinkling on you. And if it's hot out, it's like, oh, God, there's no magic. There's just sweat and suffering. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i kind of i do like i love that i'm so glad that you brought that up because i totally forgot that this i mean even though we're, there's so many signifiers of christmas in this and from the party to to the the santa hat but like that mm. is a thing i typically end up in la in december for what i don't even know the reason but that's where i end up in one way or another and i love just walking around the neighborhoods and seeing the absolutely out of context, like <laughs> colorful Christmas lights. And, and I love that for some reason. I mean, it's so novel to me being a, a Mainer who gets like buried in snow and that's the context for me. But like, yeah, you see a lot of that in this movie and that's, that's great. I'm, and also so glad that you reminded me that uh, Night of the Comet is a Christmas movie. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It is. It's wonderful. And I, I don't know what it is, but because it is set around Christmas, like that adds the stress level of what Rana's going through. And like, you know that it's about to be the end of the month because Christmas is at the end of the month. And mm-hmm. there's even the line when we get to like the epilogue where it's like, what are y'all doing for New Year's? Yeah, so like, we're very much set in that world, which I love. And I love that it's also like Christmas for a lot of people sucks and is mm-hmm. not a good time. And this movie's kind of not a good time, despite the fact that there's so many elements that feel like it should be a good time. Like going to a rave and like doing drugs. I mean, obviously, if you have issues with it, it's never a good time. But if it's like <laughs> a, a thing that you're doing casually, like that should be a good time. And it's not a fucking good time. And right. You know, poor Manny is getting left in an alley <laughs> while oh, he's, he's so cold, <laughs> taking way too much ecstasy, losing his mind. <laughs> oh my god! I can't imagine what it's like to come down off of ecstasy and then just wake up and be like, "Oh, I'm very cold and it's wet and I'm outside <laughs> in the trash." <laughs> this is bad for me. This is very bad. <laughs> oh my god. Yeah, and also like that's another part of like the bouncy teens thing is like he took he took two of that you know whatever the like super pure ecstasy that they were sold being told only to take one or else two will fry your head, mm-hmm. and he's fine. And I'm not saying that does, I mean 
we've we many of us know and have have lost you know people too young to having done too many drugs but i also know there are any number of occasions where i should have died by way of my behaviors and intake and did not in ways where like if i did the same now i would be toast so yeah again i was just like yeah this is this is a Mm -hmm. teen this is a teenage i i recognize Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and i i have such a love for movies that follow what I like to describe the bad influence kids, which are all of the kids that your parents warned you about. And this is a movie that kind of celebrates those kids. Like it's not afraid to be like, hey, um, if your name is Simon and you go to Las Vegas and have a threesome, um, watch the fire maybe like don't burn your whole room down <laughs> like no amount of pussy is that important to like set a room on fire like it's just not um so you get like you know great messages like that but at the same time like you kind of are so proud of him for doing that. And you get, you get like shitty Brecken Meyer at the end who has like a black eye and is all fucked up. And he's like, you had sex with two women. And that's their (laughs) primary concern. And that's another thing where I was like, he asks it twice. That's another thing where I was like, yeah, I recognize this in a really big way. And just that whole scene where Simon ends up having that threesome. And it's like, there's just something about it. Like it's, it's kind of sad. Like that girl lights her, her Kleenex on fire. Like they're not they're It's, it's between three very not bright people. And <laughs> I, again, I was like, I love like none of this feels glorified. It feels like glorified because it'd be like, it'd be like, t- like titillating one way or another to put on screen. But like none of these people are super aspirational. And I really enjoyed that as well. You're just like, <laughs> no, okay. If that's yeah. like the price you pay for a threesome, is to be any one of these three people in this situation. All right. (laughs) (laughs) Totally. And maybe it's just because Simon has an accent like this, but so much of this movie feels like, you know, this is enjoyable, but this is also like a bad time in the way that something like a train spotting is, where it's just people who are bad people making bad decisions, getting into weird misadventures. And Simon got like plucked out of train spotting and now he's trying to live out like his magnum PI American dreams by doing all of the worst things he could do because he saw it on TV. Yeah, totally. I think, yeah, his, his, is he Scottish? I think he's Scottish. His Scottish accent doesn't help his case. (laughs) Helps him get laid though, which is true to life. I bet. Mm -hmm. I mean, we love accents, don't we? <laughs> we love accents, and they're also their bridesmaids in a wedding, so you know that they're a little lit. Like, oh, I've, we- some of my saddest sex in my life has been <laughs> wet, wedding wedding hookups. Like wedding hookups <laughs> are the worst. They're the you know, worst. <laughs> Owen Wilson and Vince Vaughn made it seem much more glamorous than sad. totally. It is not. It is. It's exactly the opposite on the glamorous to sad spectrum. It's in my experience, it's usually much more in the sad spectrum. Because <laughs> then you're like, well, are we going to go to the brunch thing? Uh, no? Okay, well. <laughs> One of cool. my favorite wedding experiences of all time, and I don't know if she listens to the show, so I'm not going to say her name, but I love you. You know who you are. One of my <laughs> friends uh, saved herself from marriage, and we all knew. And so we go to this wedding, we have a great time. And then the next morning, we're all in like the hotel breakfast nook, eating free continental breakfast, and she comes down. And like, it's one thing when like, when we got married, 
no one was having that like, <laughs> what'd you do on your wedding night? Like, because they know we fuck. Like, the jig right. is up. They right, got right, right. it. The jig but is with up. My, <laughs> but with my friend, we knew she lost her virginity that night. So, like, she comes down in her little, like, Mrs. robe, and we're all just kind of staring at her like, <laughs> and she's like, shut the fuck up, all of you. And we're like, how was it? Stop talking. Like, stop oh asking God. me these questions. But also, like, your family knows this, too. So, like, yeah. you're coming down to breakfast, 100%. Everyone in this room knows that you fucked last night. That's wild. That's, <laughs> like, like, the worst case scenario. <laughs> <laughs> there was also a great situation when they checked into the, we all checked into the hotel, and the bridal suite was right next to the room that was assigned for her parents. And she's like, absolutely not. That's not happening. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! Oh my god! Which I love so much. Oh god, weddings. So you have uh. silly wedding things. I'm sitting here going to like my family things where it's like pay a dollar and you get a tiny shot of apple pucker and all the men in the room can dance with the bride. And I was like, I don't Holy like crap. this. I went. Oh my god! I also went to that at least one or two of those weddings. I, my aunt April <laughs> and uncle Phil. I'm gonna call them up by name. These fuckers. They they got married. <laughs> They got me. I love them so much, but they got married in a, um, in like a Grange hall, like that sort of thing. It was like, everything Mm -hmm. was wood paneled. Like it was like, it was exactly what you just described. Everything was wood paneled. (laughs) And I caught the thing that goes around the leg. Oh, the garter. garter. Did you wear it on your head? Cause I think that's what you're supposed to do. I was eight years old and I had to put it, (laughs) I had to put it on my aunt April. I had to put it on her leg. You had and to crawl under is, the dress? Oh, yeah. And that was absolutely burned into my memory for the rest of my days. Oh, no. <laughs> you see, I, I, one of the first times I had alcohol was one of those like lineups where you basically are like auctioning off for a dollar the, 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 a privilege to dance with the bride. And I remember I was coaxed into it by one of my aunts of going like, but look how cute your cousin is. Don't you want to dance with her? Oh, my God. Oh, Which, my like, God. I was like 12. Do you hear the words that you just said? Like, she looks beautiful, doesn't she? I'm like, I'm like 12 and fat and wearing like a bad Hawaiian button up because I don't own nice shirts. Why is this okay? (laughs) 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 Oh, Oh, shit. That that aside resonates so hard in that like my Aunt Peggy used to buy me clothes from the husky section of the Bugle Boy catalog. (laughs) And she's like, she's like, it's got a lot of room for your seat. Like. <laughs> the bugle boy section and the big dog t-shirts. Oh, like big dog. Oh, the, the fat kid wardrobe of the 90s. Hey, my best friend through most of school owned a collection of big dog shirts that were all movie parodies. Oh my God. That's so good. Like Goodfellas, like that sort of thing. Oh, like- Goodfellas, Star Wars. I don't remember all of them, but they, I, I'm not even positive he'd seen all the movies he had There shirts were definitely for. Pulp Fiction big definitely. dog shirts. Yes. Because uh, the kid who was next to me alphabetically all throughout like elementary and junior high had one. And I just remember him getting in trouble one day because it's the dogs, like, you know, using guns. And it's the famous pose of Travolta Mm -hmm. and and Jackson. And the school was like, you can't wear that. There's guns on it. This is immediately after Columbine. That can't happen. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Also, yeah, we're 1999. Ghost coming out during fucking Columbine year. Yeah, absolutely. Yikes. (laughs) Oh, God. 
Yeah. 99 is, uh, oh God, what a year. 99 <laughs> feels like 2016 does in that. Yeah. It's like 99, yeah. like 2001, 2016. They all feel like it was like, they're like, hey, everything's different for everyone now. And you're like, for particularly for white people who felt safe in a particular way for a long time. <laughs> and, and yeah, it feels like just like a paradigm shifting time. Yeah, it's, and that's kind of one of the, my favorite things about when we do this show is we get to look at stuff that like, looks absolutely correct like we remember it and everything makes sense but it is such a different world but also the same and it's it's so weird to look at this movie and how how it's exactly like i remember this period being uh, sort of because i was obviously like eight years old when this came out so i mean i wasn't necessarily in the thick of it by the time i got to high school though like this was kind of how things sort of were or how people wanted them to be and oh man, the, the the hot mess express for for white kids in in my uh, coming up, like I was specifically straight edge because I did not want to be a hot mess like these people. And BJ gives me shit. He just goes, "Well, when you're in a high school, you can't really be straight edge. That doesn't mean anything." I'm like, "Excuse me, when everyone <laughs> in your high school is either drunk or high at all times, it does mean something." Yes. Yeah, and I'm totally. not anymore. Now I'm a bartender, so it's like that. That once I met actual straight edge people, they were jerks, and I decided oh, I don't want to do this. Worst, like yeah, worst. I had like a fi- like I did like a bunch of st- it's so inappropriately again because I was working and around like elder teenagers. I did a lot of stuff to 14, and then I didn't do anything to like 18 as straight edge. Although you know, if you're not if you're not now, you never were or whatever whatever mm-hmm. whatever that slogan is. <laughs> I didn't pay attention to it, and I was gonna get a straight edge back tattoo that was like this big and and it's like i just described like a like a sketchbook size tattoo with my hands it's like a hubcap size it's huge huge on my back and the guy i can't believe it in retrospect the tattoo artist was like i could take three hundred dollars right now which is how much a tattoo cost at that time somehow i could take three (laughs) hundred dollars right now but like man i can't tell you how many times i'm at a bar and someone comes in with a straight edge tattoo and drinks he's like save it, save your money, come back in a year if you want it. And I was not in a year. Yeah. What an angel. Thank, yeah, thanks, Jason, <laughs> that, the tattoo that, guy. That's that's a very kind tattoo artist. See, the thing is, I love like a good bartender, a good tattoo artist, like the kind of people who are sort of the, the elder statesman of like the weird, slightly dangerous yes. world that this film exists in, where it's like, yes. that's the person you want to trust and your your fate is in their hands. Yes. And there's not one of those people in this movie. <laughs> no, no. In in theory, Oliphant should be that. He mm-hmm. should be like in a in a lesser movie, he would have a conscience and direct people a little bit. And he does not, and that's great. The version of that character is his character in the girl next door. Like he's playing the same character he's doing in Go, but with a little bit of a backbone and a little bit of a conscience. He's, he's got principles. Yeah, he has like a moral compass that we can actually see versus in Go, Timothy Oliphant is just like peak charming dickhead, which is my favorite version of Timothy Oliphant mm-hmm. outside of like this feels out of character Santa Clarita diet, but I love it because of how out of character it feels. Like I'm so perplexed by him because he's so good at playing such scumbags, but I know that he's a wonderful human. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. He seems, he seems very sweet, but he also seems at home in these, in these characters somehow. So what do you have against the family circus? Okay. You sit down and read your paper. 
and you're enjoying your entire two-page comic spread, right? And then there's the family fucking circus, bottom right-hand corner just waiting to suck, and that's the last thing you read, so it spoils everything you read before. You could just not read it. I hate it, yet I'm uncontrollably drawn to it. The things I didn't quite recall in this movie, although I remember the scenes, but I don't, I didn't remember the context or energy is like the, his like sexual menace up front is really interesting. Like yeah. to oh, get, yeah. to get Sarah Polly, to get Rana to, um, to show herself as like being whatever, like on the level for buying drugs. He has her like lift her shirt and turn around, but he's showing it's really to show that like, she's not wearing a wire, but also there's like this mm-hmm. weird, like menacing, element to it because like the music goes way up which i understand Mm -hmm. again for the context but like there is a menace that's really interesting about his character for someone who becomes likable and relatable because he hates family circus like the rest of us (laughs) (laughs) oh god we haven't even talked about katie holmes yet have we katie holmes is in this movie yes we haven't even talked about her baby katie holmes baby melissa mccarthy baby oh yeah everybody baby breckenmeyer it's crazy yeah, this movie is like the starting ground for so many people that would become just massive superstars because Katie Holmes shot this like after she shot the pilot for Dawson's Creek. <gasps> so really? she hadn't blown up yet. So they got her right at the cusp of when the she was ground about to explode. level. And in talking about Sarah Polly too, um, Sarah Polly is a, is a filmmaker now and the director was talking about meeting her and like knowing from Jump Street, this is who I want. Like she's perfect. And she was already disillusioned with Hollywood and is like, no, I'm done. And if people don't know, Sarah Polly is now one of the most like outspoken women directors talking about like how fucked the system is and how everything needs to change. Like she's incredibly critical. Mm. And uh, if it wasn't her, it was going to be Christina Ricci, which I think is also mm-hmm. really interesting for 1999 because that's like a really nice sweet spot in her career as well. But I, mm-hmm. I, I guess just, also I Reese Witherspoon was considered as well, which is yes. like, which and it's a really funny trio of very specific personalities um, yeah. that were considered for this role. And, and that also brings into that knowing that this focuses on Sarah Polly and again like you said it's like was like a was a, a birthplace of many many careers or or helped keep people on specific trajectories um I learned only now for watching this that like this movie was initially just supposed to be a short about about Rana's character yeah and which makes so much sense because like that feels like she feels like the most fully formed character with like the most fully formed whatever and then they were like well to stretch this out we need a couple more stories and so they did that but um, Mm -hmm. yeah that that made a lot more sense watching this is like it being a vehicle specifically for Sarah Polly who Everyone in this movie is great, but she's a fucking genius. And I love, oh, I definitely. Love, love seeing her shine. <laughs> yeah. Um, I really haven't seen her in too many things. The one I know her best for is Dawn of the Dead, which is like five years later or so. Um, yeah. and, and there's really good side characters in this movie. Obviously, Timothy Oliphant's great. Obviously, Tay Diggs is wonderful. Um, like there's, there's cool other people, but she really is like the anchor of this entire movie. And you can tell that like the movie starts focusing on her and it ends focusing on her. And she really is like the central piece of this. And I, if it wasn't Sarah Polly, I could, I could buy Christina Ricci. I think she would fit this. I don't know if Reese Witherspoon has it in her to do this character Mm -hmm. properly, but I would in a parallel universe, I would watch that movie. 
I would lament totally. yeah, that this yeah. version wouldn't exist. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, I agree. Like, I don't know that Reese could have done it in yeah. this way. I think there's there's an inherent sweetness about Reese Witherspoon. Yeah. That that like I think I I, I don't know if any of us would be able to disassociate with because like her mm-hmm. face is just so sweet and <laughs> yes. so cute, which can add like really nice juxtaposition when you have something like an election where she's kind of a scumbag, but like a charming one. Mm-hmm. Um, but whereas this, like Rana is a character that is just fucking over it. Yeah. 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 She's just, oh my God, she, even just her face, the way it sits, looks exhausted and jaded. And she's like 18. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, don't get me wrong. I was definitely jaded and tired of things when I was 18. And now that I've gotten this far, I, I can see how far I can sink and be exhausted by people in life. So when you're that age, when you're 18, that is the most fed up you have ever been. You still got a long way to go before you get even more fed up. But oh, <laughs> you're just the most over shit possible when you're that age. Especially when you have to work on Christmas yeah, like 14 hours straight and then another shift on top of it. Yeah. Oh, God. So from this article, something that I also wanted to bring up that I love is something the editor had to say about this. Um, Stephen Miraconi really loved working on this movie, which it always warms my heart when people do these retrospectives and it's like, nope, this was a great experience. Everything was awesome because I think too often we hear about just like horror stories about beloved movies and then it ruins it forever. <laughs> um, and in this one, he's like, you know, there's a scrappiness to go that could only have been generated by a group of people who much like the movie's characters often found themselves in situations where they were in over their heads. As the editor says, one of the things I like about Go is that it's a movie about idiots that's made by a bunch of goofballs, just a bunch of knuckleheads. <laughs> Good use of words. That is a great use of words. Yeah, it, I don't know. The energy, the ener- it, feels, it feels like everyone was on a similar page, which is really nice. What, one, thing that, one thing that struck me, uh, Harmony, about what you were saying with regard to like if the Reese Witherspoon movie existed, you know, we would appreciate it, but bemoan the fact that this one didn't exist is, is it turns out in this, jumping onto what you were saying, BJ, about um, Polly's outspokenness is she wrote an op-ed, I think a, a handful of years ago for the Times about specifically how she didn't end up acting a lot because of her experiences with Harvey Weinstein. So wow. there were you know, very, very like many, very sort of keyed into the, that, that me too moment specifically in the, the, the Weinstein week, but also just, you know, it's, I just think about how absolutely fucking tragic it is. How many performances we never saw from people, um, like Polly who like, we could have had a lot more Polly if, Mm -hmm. if, if it wasn't for that. And that's just, you know, obviously disgusting, but, but worth noting that there are a lot of performances that we didn't get to see because of that specific circumstance. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's something that I I grapple with a lot when I think about sort of this retrospective that we've been having just in general with everything between like me too and free Britney and this kind Mm -hmm. of reckoning of just how atrocious we've treated women in the entertainment industry and, and, you know, marginalized people and just, you know, times up, including in that as well, like these just big social movements and how none of this is new. It was all stuff that people were saying, but we're Mm -hmm. finally at the point where people are willing to make the space to have those conversations and obviously very, very long overdue. (laughs) But 
you really bring up a good point because I think about the people like the Sarah Polly's of like, what did we, what did we miss out on? And I also think about uh, like the actress Dana Goodman who plays Carrie Mm. in the house bunny, who we did not bring up in the episode because we felt that it might be a little bit too intense, but Dana Goodman's one of the people who first outed Louis Mm C.K. And she was Mm. this budding, incredible comedic actress. And she has like three movies to her name because of it, because Mm. She spoke out against at the time, like one of the most powerful people. Like she's oh, not even wow. the one who brought him down. Like she's the one who kind of kicked it off. Mm-hmm. And it's this thing where I have so much pride that they were able to speak out, that they were able to, you know, enact this change. But I'm so fucking mad that not only did they not, you know, because obviously nobody deserves that, that treatment. Like that's abhorrent, but I think that's a given. But the fact that, they were denied the ability to continue to create and like bring these brilliant performances that have impacted so many people. Mm-hmm. And that was just taken. Yeah. So like, uh, that sounds like very trivial and surface and I'm not in any way trying to diminish what they went through. Cause that is of course the worst part about it. But Sarah Polly absolutely made an impact on, I think a lot of people by being in this movie and the fact that, she was denied the ability to continue that work is so gross to me. <laughs> like it's so yeah, fucking totally. frustrating. Mm-hmm. Totally. Totally. And it's a thing. It's, it's so interesting because we, we rarely think and understandably so, but like we rarely consider um, what's signified by the absence of something. And, and it's one mm-hmm. of those things because like you don't see, <laughs> see the absence as being a signal of something, but like mm-hmm. that's like very, that's very much a thing that, um, you know, I, I think about with a handful, a handful of actors and actresses who I know, like just went underground in one way or another. Cause that was the only option. Yeah. Um, actually probably my favorite movie from this just absolute landmark year in cinema is the mummy. Oh and yeah. The same thing even happened to Brendan Fraser, who was just now yes. bouncing back after a long time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't yeah. think people really, I think, I still think people don't really know that. That he mm-hmm. had a whole, like, uh, harassment, assault, um, like, blacklisted experience that lasted for mm-hmm. years and years. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't, I don't think people realize that either, which is also, you know, and he's also dealing with the fact that he was kind of on his own with everything. Like, the, the one blessing of Me Too is that there was solidarity, because there right. were so many people that were able to unite and be together. But then you have the people like Brendan Fraser and to some extent, like people like Terry Crews, mm-hmm. who were kind of on their own. Right. And that really, really sucks. And I have the, the utmost of empathy and, and sadness for what they went through. But I'm so happy that Brendan Fraser is getting this kind of renaissance. Oh, I love so it so deserve. much. I want to give him a hug. I love him so much. Yeah, I mean, it was also just announced that he's going to be in a Scorsese movie now. Which is everything I've ever wanted. Which is totally. so wild, and I want I want him to just steal it. I want this to be like his Uncut Gems revival. Yeah. Like, this, this is his moment where it's like, that's right, Brendan Fraser can do, like, ridiculously talented dramatic acting. I believe in him. Mm-hmm. I love it. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. I love it so very much, and I I love that this is a movie that you brought, because as we were watching it, Harmony even made the comment of like, is this a movie that if Alex had not brought this to you that you would have considered for the show? And I was like, you know, maybe. On like year three? Yeah, I was like, yeah, maybe. On a long like enough timeline, three, anything I don't know will come up. But yeah, it's probably not an immediate go-to, I bet. 
No, apparently not. Yeah, it, it definitely wasn't something that I really thought of. And it wasn't until like you said it. And I was like, that's actually kind of brilliant because it is this movie that I think has kind of gotten forgotten, doesn't have quite the cult revival that something like a jawbreaker has. Mm-hmm. But this movie really is capturing a very specific point of that late 90s. And I love that it's talking about like rave culture, which was the hotness for like three years Mm -hmm. and now has turned into like EDM. But like EDM fests do not feel like raves. Like they're they're similar in that like the music's very bass heavy and everyone's on Molly or ecstasy and there's a lot of glowing things. But like the energy is really different. I don't know how else to. I don't know how to describe it other than like it just doesn't feel the same. I mean, I've not been to a rave or an EDM concert, but I'd imagine it's because it's been commodified now. It's not like this dingy thing that a bunch of kids doing drugs are doing in like a basement or a warehouse. It, it's more of like a commercialized thing and experience now. Yeah, I think right. that that's I think that that's true and I've been I have not so I've not been to any of like like the the large format like the like 100,000 people EDM shows like mm-hmm. I think that what is it, Electric Daisy the, there's one in there's one in Yeah, Electric Daisy. There's one in Vegas that I've been in Vegas twice for for work while it was happening and I've been like around people who are going to it. And that versus like the shows that we'd go to when I was a kid that we just weren't supposed to go to that like felt highly illegal, <laughs> that um, um, felt like sticky and dangerous. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, there it feels it feels on some level like the ones that are happening out. Not to undermine it, I mean, I, there's still like extraordinarily vibrant culture within the music, etc. But like it feels a little bit like a trade show for music. Whereas, <laughs> whereas these the the things that I remember kind of like being represented on screen in this movie. Again, we were very late like manchester had happened a decade before when <laughs> when you know like when we were doing it but it there was there was certainly a seediness and a danger outside of just the potential that you could od that I, it that i felt in a big way that felt like liberating um in a way that i don't know if it was really liberating as much as just like my adrenaline was going in a really intense way no, but I think there is something to that, honestly. And in and, and the way that this movie functions where it's undoing a lot of what had been established as like teen movie tropes. And it's so far off the beaten path. I think that's why a lot of people either aren't noticing it or don't grapple with it the way that they do a lot of these other subversive teen movies from this year, even like mm-hmm. this era, but also specifically this year where you saw a lot of these things become cult classics. And this one's kind of... Uh, it's like a bubbling under cult classic from my understanding. I think this one is still really edgy for a lot of people because it feels very real. Like Jawbreaker is one of my favorite movies of all time. That movie does not feel real to me. It's a cartoon. It feels, yeah, it's (laughs) camp. It's high camp. Darren Stein's a fucking genius, but Mm. yeah, it's a cartoon. Go feels very real. Go feels like the the weekend that my friends are telling me about after I haven't seen them. And they're like, you're not going to believe what <laughs> happened this weekend. And then they tell me the story and I'm like, that's crazy. I believe every word that yes. you just said because that sounds exactly like the kind of trouble you would get into. Totally. Yeah, there's, there's, it's almost visceral in how sincere it is. It feels yeah. like we just covered, I mean, this is this is such a fucking ridiculous comparison, but I I feel like there are similarities as we just covered Texas Chainsaw Massacre for the for the show. 
And you know how like there's like a quasi there is there is so much artifice in this movie there isn't this feel but like there's a quasi like documentary realism to that movie is like mm-hmm. this movie does feel like the kids are not fantastic in any way like the kids are like no. dirty and they work and one kid almost ODs behind a trash can uh, behind a porn you know a porn theater turned dance center <laughs> for a night and um um yeah like it it kind of has that realness in a way that like. I feel like it's it's limiting its audience. Like there's no, it's speaking to people who have like similar experiences, but it, it doesn't rope in anyone from an aspirational nature. Like there's no aspiration in this movie. And so <laughs> yeah. you shut off half of your potential cult audience as a result. Whereas like, I think like um, Jawbreaker and But I'm, but I'm a Teenager, um, they they have both the like resonant actual experience of living, you know, pretty specific experiences of the people in the movies and also are like high camp and high fantasy. And so you have multiple potential audiences for the both of them. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that you're, you're absolutely right is that there's nothing triumphant feeling about this movie. The triumph is that you made it through the night and now you're having breakfast at a diner with Timothy Oliphant Totally. Like, that's Bonus. your reward for getting through this night. <laughs> and that sounds a lot more glamorous than it actually is in this movie. <laughs> Absolutely. Having like a heady conversation about Christmas presents in the, the comic section. You know what I like best about Christmas? The surprises. I mean, it's like you get this box and you're sure you know what's inside of it. You know, you shake it, you wait, you're totally convinced you have it pegged. No doubt in your mind. But then you open it up and it's completely different. You know, wow, bang, surprise. I mean, it's, it's kind of like you and me here, you know? I'm not saying it's anything it's not. It's just, come on, this time yesterday, who would have thunk it? And that's like, I think that that's that when I said that, like it has that flavor of clerks. Like, I think that that's another thing that stood out when I saw it initially is like, the, you know, and I don't mean to give these movies shit because they're, they have their place or whatever, but like, the American Pie movies are exclusively about fucking, and yes, and like definitely. I love. Don't get me wrong, like I loved fucking as a teenager, but like <laughs> that was such a slim part of my overall experience. Like so much of my experience was just talking to people, and yeah. this movie's dialogue heavy. Like all of these are like multi- multiple part conversations with like various people exposing things about them in ways that I don't remember movies targeted towards me doing. Yeah, I agree completely. Some of like this, the Tarantino for teens really is accurate. Like I just, she said that when we were watching it and I was like, save that. It's brilliant. It's so um, good. <laughs> because like everyone is communicating in this movie, even in scenes where like I think about when Scott Wolf and, and Jay Moore are in the, the cop car about to, you know, set up this this bust on on Ron, Simon, but you know, it ends up being Rana. And they're having the 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 discussion of like, I think my girl's been cheating on me because they don't want to out themselves. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they're having an argument without having an argument. And I love that because that is the passive aggressive yeah. way <laughs> that teenagers deal with their problems and by deal with it like don't deal with their problems. And we do it today. Like 
people make very passive aggressive like Instagram story updates. Are you, are like, you subtweeting me? Are you subtweeting me? Yes. Like they're subtweeting each other in front of each other's faces, and it's amazing. In front of a cop. It's also yeah, in front of a cop. Fasc- <laughs> it's also fascinating, and there's there's so much like necessary and important commentary that can happen by way of how much like gay men's experiences were centered in cinema starting whenever they started to show up on screen through whenever. But the fact mm-hmm. that like gay men were the only romantic interests in this movie set like directed at teens was really interesting. Like, like they, it wasn't like they were like, and she's a sassy lesbian. And like, she's like super hot. And like all the guys who watch this movie are going to want to see her in one way or another. (laughs) And that's how we're going to pull them in. They're like, no, 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 no. (laughs) You get Jay Moore with a middle part. (laughs) Exactly. You get Jay Moore from one of the worst seasons of Saturday Night Live. And he's, (laughs) and he's the gay interest in this movie. And again, like they straight it up so hard that it's, it's, that's the, one of the messiest elements. Like they actually mm-hmm. straighten the text of the script. But mm-hmm. I think, um, that's a fascinating choice. Like it's a fascinating choice to target a movie again to it, this felt a little heavier. I mean, I don't know who, which, what they were dealing with, with demographics and gender when they made this movie, but it feels like it's at least making a plea to boys. And again, like the only romantic pairing in the movie is is two gay guys in their mid twenties. And yeah. I'm sitting here thinking about because I agree with you that the the dialogue is very sh- like straighted up between so the macho. two of them. It's so macho. <laughs> but at the same time, I'm also thinking about the late '90s, where like you know this is when Will and Grace is becoming part of the yeah uh, the normal conversation and the big thing was like not being like jack like i am a gay man and i'm not like jack totally. and this is when we start getting into a, a problem that we still have in the community of like the the no fats no femmes sort mm-hmm. of thing where we did get a lot of gay guys that were trying to like pass as straight and also these are gay men in hollywood which is still as much as people want to believe it's not still pretty fucking unforgiving Mm -hmm. uh to gay men Mm -hmm. and they're in so they're in soap operas where they're supposed to be these like dashing men that all women are interested in heartthrobs yeah they're heartthrobs they're mcsteamy types so i i can understand at the same time like as much as part of me wants to be like "Mm, you straighted the shit out of this part of me is like yeah but there's a read to be made here about the the late 90s and being a gay man in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. So there's just so many things about this movie that I I think are so ahead of its time while at the same time perfectly capturing what that t- that time was in ways that a lot of teen movies weren't. Also and, like and to, to just to talk about like lessons from this movie. I went to a strip club once and um and I was I got a lap dance at a strip club and the stripper was like you can touch me. Oh, and I was like, no, 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 no. I have seen, <laughs> I have seen go <laughs> in my head. I was like, I know that that only ends badly for everyone. So I'm just going to respectfully <laughs> keep my hands where they are. That was my primary takeaway from this movie that has stuck with me <laughs> at least through a part of my twenties. <laughs> I, I have not been to a strip club for a hot sec, but Oh, man, I, I have found that strippers are much more lenient about rules when they're giving a lap dance to a woman. And they're like, oh, you can totally touch me. I don't let men touch me, but it's fine if you do it. And I was like, well, then. <laughs> I, I'm such like a I'm such like a, a like a New England Calvinist that I'm like, 
maybe I can, but a God that I don't believe in is watching me right now. And like, I'm just going to respect the rules. I don't want to, I don't oh, want to have to so shoot bad. anyone in the arm or get shot myself as happens in this movie. So I'm just going <laughs> to, just going to skedaddle. I do, I do love, I, and we said it a little bit up front is like, I do love how much of Simon's trouble just comes from leaning into thinking he can do anything he wants. I do love, mm-hmm. I do love that a whole lot. Like usually, um, Right down to the fact that, like, at the end, we are led to, although, like, I will tell you, I know a little bit about guns, and that, that I think it was like a snub-nosed 38 they were putting up against his arm, would have vaporized his arm off of his body. <laughs> um, so, and he responded pretty cavalierly when he got shot with it, so I, you know, whatever, a little Hollywood stretch of the imagination. <laughs> but um, I do love that even in the end, like, he doesn't get away with his shit. Like, a lot of guys, like, mm-hmm. Ferris Bueller's a douchebag who like just fucking gets away with being a douchebag i love and i yeah. love ferris bueller but like he gets away with all of his stuff and you're just like no oh, ferris he's getting away not simon he got shot in the arm good <laughs> i i honestly i really love that whole scene too where he's just sitting there and like katie holmes is the voice of reason but simon's like no it's okay you can shoot me no it's cool no it's cool like seriously just like right there right there like it'll be fine I'm, like he's so okay with it i've earned this <laughs> yeah, he's like, I, I deserve this. It's fine. <laughs> he has the same energy of that one senior who would do anything for the funny. It's like, I'm going to jump off the mezzanine in the library. Oh, yeah. Why? I don't know. Totally. Seems like a good idea. Like that Simon, <laughs> like that is the energy that he has. That paired with like real gross toxic masculinity of like, I'm just here to fuck. And you're like, <laughs> I understand exactly what I'm getting out of you. You are a pure id. <laughs> Also, I don't think Simon knows how much a gunshot wound hurts yet. He's very naive. (laughs) He's like, this is, that's not fleshy. There's a lot of bone right behind what you're pointing at. So good luck. He's he's like, it's fine. It'll be a cool story. And I'm like, dude, no, I promise you, if that's what you're thinking, it's not going to be a cool story. You're not writing ever again, but all right, cool. (laughs) You're not writing the story down. Yeah. Our guy, our guy of that caliber, (laughs) uh, his name was Flash and he, uh, yeah, he was exact. He had exactly had that same exact energy as that as that Simon character. And if he's still alive today, I'd be shocked to find out. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I would say who ours is, but he is no longer with us. But he actually died in like a very kind of cavalier way. Um, he was one of like the the rescue firefighters. They made a movie oh. about it a couple years ago. What of like the the nine firefighters in I think Colorado. Oh yeah. Yeah, he was one of them. Oh. Um, he he moved out there and became a firefighter. But in high school, like he was that kid who like hung out way too much at the skate park and was like, "Hey, you want to see something crazy?" And like would do something crazy. Um, so I'm glad to say that when he did pass, it was not in vain. Like he wasn't being a dumb yeah. fuck. He was actually doing something kind of honorable. I'm glad. Um, like when those people find a place to put that energy, because like it's yeah, that's that's great. Because it goes one way or the other. It's either it's either triumphant or sad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very yeah, there's really no middle ground for that. Like they don't just resign to being like, I sell real estate yeah, exactly. now. Like that's not how that works. Exactly. I'm a middle manager. <laughs> Great. <laughs> well, before we wrap things up, are there anything else like pressing topics that anyone wants to talk about with this movie? I just I don't know. I really I really, really appreciated I don't think I would have taken this opportunity to revisit this movie um without some direction and I'm 
I'm really grateful to this movie. I'm grateful to like all the people who are in it and to the, you know, to the writer and director. Like it gave me, it gave me like a mirror into myself and BJ, this is something that I know that you talk about. We, we've talked about on Twitter and is that a lot of times people will write off the things that were like influential to them in their teens. Cause they feel frivolous in one way or another. Um, mm-hmm. but that's really where you're taking shape in a lot of ways. And it's important to explore all those things. Like it's important to explore the fact that the album I listened to more than any other album was use your illusion one and two in high school. Like it's important to (laughs) explore these things, even though they're not necessarily glamorous. And like, I'm grateful for the gems that snuck through. And this was very much one of those gems. And I appreciate everyone who was involved for putting it into my life. That's really beautiful. It is. You're, you're, Alex, you're the best, and also uh, I'd like to say that I religiously listened to User Illusion 1 and 2 as well, and the year was like 2007. Whoa, okay, cool. <laughs> um, I also was there on opening day and bought Chinese Democracy Amazing. because Axl Rose taught me how to sing, oh. uh, not necessarily in the best way, oh, but... Totally. I lo- God, I, with all those slanderous things I was saying about Axl up front comes from fucking loving Guns N' Roses. <laughs> mm-hmm. They're a fucking really good band for like four albums. Yeah, they sure were. They sure were. I listened to Deja Tendu by Brand New, and then Jesse Lacey turned out to be a pest. Oh, and cute. that's the album I used to help me get through my own experiences. So I unpack that in therapy. I feel like somebody out there who listens to the show probably is keeping a tally somewhere of all of the things I have referenced that I go to therapy for. Because oh uh, it's a lot of them. You can fill a bingo card. <laughs> it's yeah, like you can fill a bingo card. It's arguable that that Axel, through his various shenanigans, is sent at least one of his bandmates to like a mental ward for years, and maybe his demise. So yeah, I mean, like our our faves often, as we realize, like if you have mm-hmm. if you have the gravity and personality to become infamous, there's a very strong chance. Uh, you've done some bad shit and we all have yeah. to, we all have to untangle what that means for having been subscribers to you in one way or another. Yeah. I mean, sure. Axel, I don't want to just turn this into a guns and roses podcast, <laughs> but Axel Rose also would drop the N word casually, but he's like, but Slash is in the band and he's black. It's cool. I can say the F slur because my favorite singers are Freddie Mercury and Elton John. And also I uh, really like Charles Manson a lot. That was- it's like, <laughs> No, no, Axel. That's not how any of this works. <laughs> Axel just would randomly leap off the stage and beat the shit out of fans. Like, yeah, okay. I will. <laughs> not, not the best dude. It's so interesting because, like, I and uh, yeah, again, this isn't like an, this isn't an Axel celebration, but like Axel singing at Freddie Mercury's um, memorial mm-hmm. was like how I learned about AIDS. Like, I was mm-hmm. like, I was like, oh wait, they were friends. Oh wait, Queen is cool. Oh wait, this is what was happening with Queen. Oh, I'm into Queen. Thanks, Axel. no but for real like those are the weird connections you make about like we talked about it earlier when i was like yeah eminem taught me not to say the n-word i I was like eight years old so i hadn't been using it but then i learned going forward don't use it and so it was a really good experience and yeah maybe i spent a lot of money to get floor tickets to see guns and roses when slash rejoined the band with duff okay fine but i owed it to 15 year old me because you can't write that stuff off as frivolous necessarily like there, it, it matters even if you don't want it to Amazing. or if it's complicated mm-hmm. completely right uh, like uh, the amount of things that i have bought as an adult 
in honor of like 15, 16 year old me, immeasurable. And that is an act of self care, I like to believe. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes, absolutely. So, Harmony, the time has come. Go is asking you to the prom. Is it a yes, a no, or a maybe? And are you writing anything on the card back? <laughs> or I guess in this instance, like, are you saying anything into the wire that you're wearing? <laughs> the one that's dangerously close to my ball sack? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yes, this movie gets a it's a wonderful yes. I would put this No grand, it's like a third tier Christmas movie. If you want to understand how the tier system of Christmas movies work, go listen to our Night at the Comets episode. But it's not a very Christmassy Christmas movie, but it is a Christmas movie, and I would I would throw this in there as like a really good dark horse contender for that. Mm-hmm. But I would also just watch it year round. This movie is fun, extremely lurid. Uh, I like that all the characters are given the space to make mistakes and also be bad people because, you know, when you're a teen, make those mistakes when you're young because guess what? You're you're underage, so that means it's it's a slap on the wrist. And, and that's Facebook cool. doesn't exist yet because yep. it's 1999. <laughs> that's not coming back to haunt you the same way it does now. And yeah, no, I think this movie is it's so much fun and I think everyone is putting in really good performances, at least for what they're asked to do. Some people are definitely better than others. Um, specifically like Sarah Polly and like Timothy Oliphant are, are just MVPs of this film. And I want to thank Alex for bringing it because otherwise I would not have known about this until like four years from now when we would eventually do it. <laughs> well, I'm glad that you're going to bring go to the prom. Um, I can't imagine a better pairing. Oh man, this is this is the kind of person you bring to prom, and they're just they don't aren't even on the dance floor. They're in the hall, and you're just doing drugs, sitting yeah, against some lockers. Absolutely, they like smell a little bit in like a nice way, and they like smoke. They smoke cloves. Yeah. Yeah. Oh God. Yeah. Hundred <laughs> percent. Totally. I'm excited about them. And Alex, thank you, the human, for coming because you're just wonderful and delightful, and I hope that. Our, our listeners want to hear more of you because you're just the bee's knees. Where can people find you on the internet if you want them to find you on the internet? I'm I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Alex Steed. Um, you are good is on Twitter and Instagram at You Are Good Pod. I also um, am on TikTok at Alex Steed and I follow uh, BJ on TikTok. Harmony, are you on TikTok? No, that's, I pop up on BJ's occasionally when she wants to do some gay shit. That's wise. Yeah, I occasionally, I occasionally see uh, BJ will you out like Grandpa from Texas Chainsaw Massacre to just be like, we're yeah. celebrating, we're celebrating. Yeah, one hundred percent. Gator, Grandpa, Gator. Yeah, that's exactly how I. Otherwise, I'm just sitting here minding my business, and she's just like, "Hey, babe, <laughs> hey," and I'm like, "Are we doing TikToks? Okay." Hey, there are a lot of trans teens that feel very seen and validated, and are given a lot of totally. hope by our existence. I know, and oh I God. think that's great. But also, I don't want to have to have the responsibility. I can barely manage being on Twitter most times. I don't post on there ever and I don't use Instagram ever. Like, let's not get carried away. Yeah, I I, I do. I want to thank you both. Like, this is a highlight of my year. I love your show very much. I always wish nothing but the very best for you both and everything you do. And I'm so excited Aww. that I got to do this with you. Thank you. Alex, thank you thank so much. You. You're the best. You're one of my absolute favorite people and are just like the optimism that I need in my life whenever I see you post things. Like, you're, you're so great. Aww, thank you.
And thank you all, as always, for listening. If you want to support the show, we do have a Patreon, patreon.com backslash prom. We currently have a stretch goal that once we reach $500 a month, we will interrupt our schedule and finally do Grease because you all apparently want to listen to me suffer and slowly descend into madness on here. And if that's what you want... You gotta pay for it. I'm glad that all of my most hated movies aren't teen films. Yeah. We're not doing Rent. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I should just make you do Rent. You oh can't. My God. It's not a teen movie. <laughs> <laughs> but you can also follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at This Ends at Prom. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at BJ Colangelo. Harmony, where are you? I am there and don't post enough based on my own comments earlier. I'm on uh, Twitter and Instagram at Velocitraptor, Velosa underscore trap underscore tour. And as always, the biggest thank you in the world to the Sonderbombs for letting us use their song title as our theme song. They are just the best. Clockbound just celebrated its six-month release it anniversary. Did. Our copy will rules. get here in the mail eventually. It's, it's in Ohio. Someone's <laughs> holding on to it and keeps not remembering to send it to us because <laughs> it got sent to the old address. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's trapped in Ohio, it's, as is anyone in I mean, Ohio. So so <laughs> are most of the Sonderbombs, I believe. So, <laughs> well, Harmony, do you have any cool indie artists that you want people to check out this week? I do. Okay, so um, there's actually a really really cool uh, singer out there. She goes by Kississippi, and just released her uh, album Mood Ring. Uh, it's super duper tight, very sad but also happy and dreamy and danceable. Some of these songs have been released as singles like before the album's release, but like some of the highlight tracks I think are like We're So In Tune, Around Your Room, Hell Being. Um, I, I definitely just recommend listening to it. It's super fucking cool. Awesome. And as always, we do have the playlist for that. You can check it out and... Uh... Harmony will put some good tracks on there. But thank you all for listening. Thank you for being here. We adore you. And don't forget, save that last dance for us. Goodbye. All right, everybody, that is it for this week's episode of You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies. Again, not a typical episode, but I hope you'll like it. I hope if you are not already listening to these shows, you will check them out. You'll subscribe. You will rate and uh, review based on what you heard here. Those things are very helpful to all of us. Carolyn Kendrick is our producer. She makes everything sound great. I'm so glad to have Carolyn on our team. You heard Carolyn talk about Titanic last week. And thank you so much to Fresh Lash, who produces beats that appear on our show. We really appreciate everything you do, Lash. Next week, we are going to talk about John Carpenter's The Thing from 1982. And we are going to talk after that about To Die For. 
by Gus Van Sant, 1995. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You can find us on Twitter. You can find us on Instagram. Again, you can find us on Patreon where you can get some bonus content. And that's it. Hey, you are good. Thanks for being a part of this whole thing.